there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girl's night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, Quentin and Roger travel back in time to the rural South in Buster and Billy. Buster, played by Jan Michael Vincent, wants to get laid. His girlfriend, she wants nothing to do with it. Frustrated, his friend suggests that he gets it on with the easy girl in school named Billy. Buster asks her out with every intention of using her for sex, but soon finds himself falling into an unlikely romance with Billy that can only end in Southern fried tragedy. We discuss the subgenre of turgid 70s tearjerkers, how American graffiti changed the coming-of-age story, and Jan Michael Vincent as a heartthrob. There's only one thing that I can say for sure about this movie. It should have been a love story. Next up, beware of the dog who thinks in Baxter. Based on the novel Hellhound, Baxter is a black comedy about a white bull terrier named Baxter as he moves from owner to owner and the misfortunes that befall them. With incredible voiceover that gives us insight into the mind of Baxter, we discuss the genre of dog movies, what it feels like to be crippled by domestication, and the mystery of what happened to the director. Lastly, the only way out was death. Quentin and Roger watch Lindsay Shantef's outlandish yet realistic heist film, The Fast Kill. A successful diamond robbery goes wrong when six criminals attempt to divvy up their earnings. A story full of double crosses and dripping with vengeance, the duo discuss the great use of economy filmmaking, the groovy music, and the heart-pounding heist sequence that kept them on the edge of their seat. I'm Gala Avery, and joining us now, here's Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. Thank you, Gala. Hello, everybody. This is the Video Archives podcast, Kill the Bakalov, and I am your host, Quentin Tarantino. And I am Roger Avery, your other host. Okay, so now our first movie is a, a RCA Columbia home video, and it's of uh, the film Buster and Billy. His name is Buster. He's engaged to Margie. He's president of his senior class, and he's everybody's hero. Thank you. 
That bus driver's coming to get you. Is there gonna be a fair fight or a dirty fight? Hey, but one kind of fight. Dirty, huh? You ought to get out of that truck. Get it, Buster. Her name is Billy, and there's a girl like her in every town. The girls all know about Billy. If they see Billy smile at you, they put two and two together. My name's Buster. What's yours? Billy Joe. Who would ever believe they'd fall in love? The girl you were. Buster and Billy with co-hit The Fast Kill will be playing for one night only on Monday, April 17th at the new Beverly Cinema. 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90036. For tickets and more information, visit thenewbev.com. The new Beverly Cinema, always on film. From 1974, starring uh, Jan Michael Vincent... Uh, as Buster, Joan Goodfellow as Billy and Pamela Sue Martin, Robert England, and Clifton James, amongst other uh, really cool Southern actors. Directed by Daniel Petrie. Ooh, I've gone off and on on, but when I'm on, I'm really on. A young girl's past comes back to haunt her in this moving story of teenage passion and small-town moors set in rural Georgia in 1948. Buster Lane... Vincent, one of the handsomest, most popular boys in high school, is dating the town's prettiest girl, Margie Hooks, Pamela Sumar. His only problem is Margie's refusal to make love with him until they're married. In his frustration, he turns to Billy, Joan Goodfellow, a shy farm girl who's allowed herself to be used by all the boys to win their acceptance. Although Buster's intentions aren't honorable at first, a relationship develops when he discovers a vulnerable beauty in her. Everyone's dismay, they're soon caught up in a tender, passionate love affair, which is destined for an abrupt and tragic twist of fate. There we go. Approximately a hundred minutes. VHS Hi-Fi. That's actually a pretty good description of uh, uh, the story. Now, Buster and Billy actually belongs to a a subgenre in the 70s that I'm quite a fan of. Turgid 70s tearjerkers, (laughs) which are either... Love story has gone awry for whatever reason, and there's a tear-jerking aspect to that, or somebody becomes crippled, and then they have to fight back, and there's a tear-jerking aspect to that. But they're 70s turgid tear-jerkers. So uh, films in that category would be uh, Love Story, and then the sequel Oliver Story, The Other Side of the Mountain, Part 1 and Part 2. One of my favorite ones, I even like a little bit more than Buster and Billy, even though it's a little ridiculous, is a movie called The Promise, which I've always wanted to do on this show with Kathleen Quinlan and Stephen Collins, which I'm a big fan of. But then there's other things. There's like uh, uh, The Christmas Tree with William Holden, which is really good. Uh, Sidney Poitier's A Warm December, which is sort of like a black love story. It's a love story with sickle cell. In 1973, American Graffiti would come out, and it would kind of change the whole... uh, nostalgia-based cinema scene. From that point on, every nostalgia-based movie, for the most part, had to look like American Graffiti. But before American Graffiti, the two nostalgic-based movies that were big hits that people were uh, copying is uh, The Last Picture Show and especially Summer of 42. Yeah, which uh, Kubrick apparently really loved. Well, and I'm, I'm, I'm right there with Stanley. I think Summer of 42 is actually one of the best movies of the 70s and one of the most devastating endings of ever, any movie I've ever seen. It's just a great, great movie. I'm a big fan of the sequel, too, uh, Class of 44. 
And the film almost literally seems as if you know, it's a way to combine Last Picture Show and Summer of 42 together. On one hand, the first half is the most like Last Picture Show, where it's not just about the couple's relationship. It, it, it's about this town. It's about this community. And later when we get to the movie Baxter, it's kind of quite similar. While you learn all these other characters, it's you're actually learning about the people in this town. You're like, the people on this community. St- the people yeah. on this street. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of a, a, a the situation of Buster and Billy. Then it turns into a more of a story, like it does in Summer of 42, and then it, it has this big, powerful third act. Okay, so now I first saw Buster and Billy, uh, not when it came out at the theaters. I actually remember the TV spots quite well for it, but it didn't seem like something I wanted to see. But then I saw it later, like I think in uh, 75, 76, on either, I remember it was not NBC, but either CBS or ABC, you know, Friday night movie or Wednesday night movie. And uh, so I watched it when it aired on television in the seventies and I loved it. And the ending just had me off, had me off the couch. I couldn't believe what I was watching. And I was completely crying by the end and, and everything. I was sucker for the film. thought it was terrific. I might've seen it once since then, but not in a way that I remember. So this was really my, my official taking it seriously, second viewing from having watched it when I was a boy on television. So what did you think about it, Roger? Okay, so um, you fall into the movie because it's this nostalgia-driven film, and it's about this, you know, the silent generation, like mm-hmm. the generation kind of uh, yeah. before the boomers, these the sort of in-between. It's shortly, it's, I believe this is just after the, a, after the war. Rock and roll will make the silent generation the loud generation, yeah. and then, then that's, that's when... Teenagers will start owning the zeitgeist, all right? But that's not the case in 1948. And so it captures that kind of youthful, melancholic anticipation, frustration, um, you know, uh, the paths you're taking to growing up. And yet you're in this little town, this podunk town, Mm -hmm. where there's like the one bar you can go to with the pool table in it. There's the the one place you can go make out. Like Petrie... And I'm with you, like same way. I'm hot and cold on Petrie, but this is where I'm hot. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is he. His talents are perfectly used here mm-hmm. because it feels super naturalistic. And then Jen Michael Vincent is so good. Yeah. In this movie, he's so outstanding in this film. He's mm-hmm. so he's got this tortured quality. Mm-hmm. And then when the movie evolves mm-hmm. and it it comes to uh, its uh, revengematic, you know, mm-hmm. con- conclusion. I was jumping out of my seat. Yeah. Like it, I was flipping upside down because, you know, this movie is more. It brings you off the couch, especially when you watch it at home, because it did, it did when I was a kid watching it on the CBS Wednesday night movie or whatever. It brought me off the couch. I was like, oh my God. I mean, (laughs) the Stoics would tell you that nostalgia is a negative quality Mm -hmm. because you're placing yourself into the past. Mm -hmm. And what this movie does in its nostalgia is it kind of positions itself in a way to to kind of observe America, mm-hmm. rural America mm-hmm. at this time. And I just didn't expect it to take the turn that it took. Mm-hmm. Now, did it fully earn all of that at the end? Like, I I feel like I, I needed to descend more into the film. I wanted to see more specifically of Billy. No, I think no, that's to when, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, that's to me, that's the film's Achilles heel. Yeah, if there's when, any when kind I, of failing in the film, I, I longed for more of, of Billy, a more of an understanding of Billy. You know, I wanted to see inside of her home, her freaking, you called mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, she lives at like Carrie in the Carrie house or yeah, something. Yeah. And her, yeah, her wanted zo- to spy inside her, of her, her, her hillbilly zombie parents. Yeah. 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 Uh, um, look, the thing about Jan Michael Vincent, 
Um, boy. In the 70s, we didn't know how good we had it. When we had him as a young leading man, oh. we took him for fucking granted. And we did not realize how good we had it. I mean, the fact that it's like he can star in, in White Line Fever. He can star in this. He can star in the Baby Blue Marine. But also... You can put him next to Robert Mitchum and going home, and then like, no, you buy him as Robert Mitchum's son. He, he's holding the screen with Robert Mitchum. You find me any actor of Jan Michael Vincent's age in the, his early 20s in the Screen Actors Guild right now that you could put office at Charles Bronson in The Mechanic. In The Mechanic, no less, all yeah. right, where he's playing like the ultimate Bronson hitman character and put Jan Michael Vincent right next to him and not lose any wattage. Uh, and forget about Big Wednesday and just, you know. All well, these, I, I love Big Wednesday. You know how much I love Big Wednesday. And actually. Well, I love it. No, I think that might be his finest performance. And yeah. one of the things I love about Big Wednesday, he's kind of also doing here a little bit. It's that sort of inside of a culture and he's troubled about everything. He's got this turbulent you know, undercurrents inside of him. And Well, you know, well, like for instance, it's like, uh, well, Walter Hill. feels like a powder keg about to explode at all times. Walter Hill told me that when he wrote uh, Hard Times, he wrote it for Jan Michael Vincent. Yeah. You know, it was like the idea of the guy, he'd carry it. You'd buy him winning the fights. He has that magnificent body. He's An got, effortless body. That's, no, it's it's it, a, a frustratingly effortless body. No, <laughs> like, he maybe has the greatest body in the 70s. All right. Yeah. A like, male, male buff, natural musculature thing. It's just, yeah, it's and a, he had hair yeah. and he's like as handsome as any movie star has ever been yeah. handsome. And I mean, oh, and, it and just, he's an amazing actor. And, on it top of it and it shows you how handsome he is because the thing is, you know, when I think of him, I usually think of the big blonde feathered haired look from the mechanic and most of his modern day stuff. And, you know, he looked great that way. Yeah. All right. You know, but then you dye his hair brown. So he's not like so surfer and you give him a, a period of haircut and he's just as handsome in that as well. You know, and he has, you know, uh, you know, he's a big football star here. All right. So in uh, Big Wednesday, he's the big uh, surfing star. So, you know, he's always playing like the idol. Yeah. And these are characters Um, I usually do not like. I I, like, I don't like that guy. I don't like the the football player who's Uh like driving fast in his pickup truck and skidding out into the school parking lot. I just don't like that guy. But I like Jan Michael Vincent. Well, he's, well, okay. (laughs) We always like him in the movies with like, it shows that the jock has a soul or the jock has a thought in his brain or the jock, (laughs) the jock has some unjock like tendencies. But then I also like his little crew of weirdos that he's got hanging out with yeah. Robert Englund playing uh, the Robert albino. Ter- Robert Englund is terrific. Whitey. Whitey. Whitey right. the albino. Yeah, he's not really an albino. Well, no, but I think he's meant to be an albino because they he they keep talking about how he they dyed his hair. He's like, hey, do you like my hair black? Well, yeah, sure, Whitey. I like your hair black. It looks great. I'm, I'm thinking about dyeing my hair well, black. I think I, I'm thinking about dyeing my hair brown like yours. He's definitely supposed to be pale. I think <laughs> albino is a joke. <laughs> well, he's called Whitey on top of it all. Well, because he's pale. <laughs> and he's Robert England. <laughs> Jan Michael Vincent is, you know, he's he's the big man on campus. He's the the superstar of of the high school. He's the handsome guy. He's the one everyone thinks is the coolest. And he's like very, very respected in the town. I mean, like really, really respected. He's like one of the town's favorite sons. His dad's got a big farm. Yeah, it's important. He's he's obviously a, like a like a sports guy of yeah, some kind. A important, an important figure. Owns the, his own car. An important figure in the community, important figure in the church. And he's going out with the prettiest girl in town, played by Pamela Sue Martin, who I've always been a big fan of. The Lady in Red is one of the best New World pictures ever made, and part of the reason of it is because of her lead performance. They're the dream couple because, like, she's the daughter of the rich guy in town, and and uh, they're all upper class mountain people. 
It's almost as if they're preordained because they're such beautiful people. They're kind of the dream couple and nobody's asking any questions, but Jan Michael Vincent starts asking questions. I think you get the impression, it's not just the sex. I think you get the impression that he's like, he's finding her shallow. He's finding her shallow in her insistence on social customs of the time uh, that are not what she wants, just what what should be. And uh, one of them is definitely sex. No, we have to wait till we get married. But it's, but, the, but this is a lot of little things. Yeah, we have to wait to follow the rules is what that means. Yes. And then there's just, you know, uh, um, there's just an indication that Buster knows that there's life outside of this hill, outside of this holler. And he's a little more curious about that. And she's not. And he's starting to feel, like, no, this seems more preordained. It's almost like I almost didn't have a choice in this matter. But then the boys, his his crew that hangs around him, that I mean, and they are literally his sycophants. They've got the one and, guy who would be an alpha if, were it not for were it not Michael for Vincent. yeah were it not for Buster exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah that guy and I know exactly which guy you're talking yeah. about yeah when you say that yeah uh, they tell him that there's this dumb hillbilly girl named Billy yeah and she puts out. And so, you know, the boys from time to time, oh, hey, let's get some rye, let's get some whiskey, let's get some beer, and let's go see Billy. And they go see Billy, and they all- They all team her. They all pull a train on her, and then uh, hoot and holler and let her go. And like that's her way of kind of being popular you know, uh, 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 amongst the boys. Well, it makes her popular amongst this group of boys, but makes her a pariah as far as uh, uh, the other girls in school are concerned. But she's so socially awkward because of her- well, well, backwards that, family. Well, yeah, and you add to the fact that she's from, she seems like smarter than her parents. All right, but but you know she's coming from a very ignorant, backwards hillbilly family. Now, oddly enough, I was thinking about it. Buster and Billy almost plays like Carrie. All right, where uh, uh, as opposed to Carrie being a misfit, you know, it's like no, she's a whore. It's like if Carrie was a whore, uh, and Buster is pretty much Tommy Ross. Yeah. Uh, so the thing is, he wants to have sex. So okay, so he goes and he 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 visits Billy. It's so right. Up, it follows the scene with his girlfriend in the car. Yeah, yeah. When he he's like, hey, you know, uh, I heard once if a boy doesn't have sex, you know, and it builds up, and you eventually get kidney problems. Uh-huh. He's like, well, maybe we shouldn't be making out anymore. Yeah, yeah. And he's yeah, like, yeah. oh man, his logic isn't working with her. It's like all frustrating for him. He wants to have sex, so he goes, well, if you take Billy out, you'll you'll get lucky. And so he takes her out, but he's a nice guy. He doesn't know how to take out the town whore. So he treats it like a date. <laughs> I mean, to such a degree, she doesn't even know that he wants sex. Yeah, right? She's confused. She's confused by the whole fucking thing. But by treating it like a date, it kind of becomes a date. And the, he liked it. He likes her. She's nice, all right? Uh, uh. And it's not like he's Mr. Charming. He's really awkward, all right, during this entire time. But he is human. And she was human in her awkwardness of the whole thing. She was human. And so he goes and sees her again. And then it becomes a thing he realizes that uh, uh, his thing with Pamela Sue Martin is a sham. So he breaks off with her. Like immediately. In fact, what he does is he invites Billy to go to church. Yeah, well, they'll go after he breaks up with her. Yeah. After he breaks up with her. He actually invites her before they um, he breaks up. And then he's like, shit, I got to break up with her now because church is tomorrow morning. Oh, okay. So and so he 
go, goes over to uh, his oh, you're girlfriend's right. you're house. Oh, you're right. You're right about that. Yeah. And the mother's like, oh, hey, Buster, what are you doing here so late? And he's like, I got to talk to whatever her name is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Margie, Margie Hooks. Because he's going to be walking into public. Yeah. With the girl who's a pariah, who's considered the town whore. Yeah, so that's the thing. So it's not, you know, so it, it, you know, so where he's coming from, he's he's coming from a Sir Galahad place. It's not he's just- He's honorable. He's actually honorable. Yeah, it's not just, I like Billy, and I want to see her a little bit on the side. No, he wants to redeem her. He wants to redeem her in, 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 the, in the face of, of, of the entire town, not just the school, the entire town. Taking her to church is like taking her to City Hall. It's the- the main social hub of this community, and he, and when his parents question them about it, he stands up to them, yeah. and he, with a, with a with a moral authority that they, okay, maybe we heard wrong, <laughs> they acquiesce to his insistence that she is a good person, and then he taught her, and they, his parents, <laughs> taught him to appreciate good people, and yeah, because he's using like the the, the Christian argument uh, that you know that you, uh, you know, should be a Christian to this person, and like. These are all church-going people. They can't really deny it. They cannot deny it. When it's thrown in their face they like can, that. When he suddenly, no, he is, no, he, no, he, you know, he's. He's in a position he's in the town used, to do He's that. literally using the story of, of, of uh, I don't know if he quotes it, but he literally is using the Jesus Mary Magdalene story, all right, as a way to make his point. Yeah. You know, and the people who are closest to him, his parents, they hear it. The preacher hears it. The preacher accepts her completely. The town is, you know, a. Uh, does a belly flop. That's the basis of the story. And there may not be anybody else in that town who could have done that. There's nobody in the town who could have done that. Because he's, he's in a position, an exalted position of sorts that, you know, by taking her under his wing. He's in such an exalted position. He could, he's the only one who could shine his light yeah. on her. And, and you know, uh, I mean, uh, whatchamacallit, um, Stephen King said that when he was writing Carrie, that he was realizing, oh, wow, a girl in Carrie's position has even less of a chance of changing her social position than a serf would in fucking Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of a clue to where the movie goes is it actually, the, the Buster and Billy had a fantastic tagline because it seems like it's a love story. And they do their trailer and they would end with a picture of uh, uh, Buster and Billy uh, out in a field, uh, slow dancing, you know, by a sunset. And they're Columbia Pictures, Buster and Billy. It should have been a love story. Which portends to the tragic and dramatic third act. Okay, now, talking about the movie, uh, me watching it now, watching it, uh, uh, watching it again, I was surprised at how much I remembered it from having only seen it back then. I remembered almost the entire script. I remember almost uh, uh, the, the breakdown of uh, the structure of it, the, the story, remember it all really, really well. I agree with Roger. The problem with the film is the second act. It has a great first act that introduces you to the characters and introduces you to the community. And, and I like the fact that the community, not just Buster, is an important part of the movie. And then it has a powerhouse third act, which we don't want to reveal any of the, uh, the drama involved. The problem is the second act. The problem is the stuff that should be about Buster and Billy. There's not enough about Billy in here. Billy is too puny a character. We needed to spend more time with her. Frankly, that moment where they're in the car mm -hmm. and, and they first uh, become intimate mm -hmm. together, 
that would have been the moment. And Petrie kind of hangs back from it. And then we're sort of left to be in Buster's mind the next day. And, and, but really right there is where I, I feel like that's where I needed to see a connection beyond. You know, I actually think the big problem with it, even to go beyond, all right, the second act problem is, uh, the movie just needed to be longer. It's, it's too short. Yeah. All right. And I actually well, it's felt- It's the Billy and we needed more Billy. Yeah. And so- and Two then, scenes more uh, of Billy, just that, two. That, yeah. That's all yeah, I ask. Yeah. It, it needed like another 10 minutes, if not 15 more minutes. Uh, you know, there's just not enough of the happy times. And especially not enough of, of just Billy being a character. She she never, the actress playing her is really lovely and she's really heart-wrenching and you really, really like her. Yet we never, ever see the movie ever from her point of view. In fact, they spend more time on that road trip with Whitey. Yeah. Going off. And- Which would not be a problem if they had corresponding time with Billy. Exactly. I mean, all of that stuff with Whitey is great. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's- But what- I wouldn't take that away. i just add more Billy. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I uh, I found uh, Hugh James of um, Films and Review in December 1974 uh, did a capsule review for this, and uh-huh. Hugh James always has huge aims. <laughs> and so uh, his review, which is very much in line with what you're saying, which is pretty short, says, star-crossed lovers in rural Georgia, Buster Lange and Michael Vincent, son of a farmer, and Billy, Joan Goodfellow, daughter of a sharecropper. Buster is leader at Greenwood High, and Billy is known by most of the boys. Why Buster falls in love with Billy is scripter Ron Turbeville's problem, and he almost solves it with the help of wild, violent tragedy. Cinematographer Mario Tossi captures the tranquility of Southern countryside and the feel of rural America. Director Daniel Petrie manages to keep our interest high by evincing good performances from his antagonists and imbuing the rest of the cast with natural exuberance. That's a very flaccid way of describing the movie. Yeah. But, um, but he, he he essentially gets it. He's pinpointing the second act problem. Yeah. He's, he basically says, this is kind of Ron's problem. The turbulence problem. But the th- mm. yeah, the thing is, we buy the love story because we want to buy it. We, we buy should. the love story on the strength, I think, of Jan Michael. Vincent. I agree, and the strength of her, and the strength of we. That's what we want. Yeah. But I wanted more time. I wanted. I just want. I, I wanted more time with Billy. Billy needed to be a stronger character, to be as powerful a film as it could be. Having said that, it's so fucking powerful, and, and its premise is so can't lose. That it almost doesn't matter, but that is my problem with it. And this was like a big movie. I mean, this is uh, Columbia, right? Yeah. This is like a big Columbia release in uh, 1974. Yeah, no, it did, yeah. This it was did like good. a holiday release, which was probably, you you would release something in December mm-hmm. for a uh, Academy consideration for the next year. Mm-hmm. They, I'm sure that this is what they were thinking. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. And 
and we're back with Gala. Gala, did you see Buster and Billy? Yes, I did see Buster and Billy. I actually got to watch it on VHS because my tape came in time. So, whoop, because it's not available on streaming. So, Quentin had me sweating. I was a little nervous. I was like, I hope my tape comes in. I think I think Quentin is picking movies at this point to try to, to, try, <laughs> no, to, to Quint- try to break you. Quentin's just getting lucky. <laughs> yeah. Just Quentin's taste runs to the off the beaten track. Well, I, okay, so I knew this was an RCA Columbia tape, and I didn't actually read the back of the box before I watched it. I was like, I'm just going to just put it in cold and just watch it. And I'm sitting there in like two minutes, and I'm like, is this Hicksploitation? I was like, I, I feel it in my bones. I feel the revenge of Matic coming. I know. It reminded me of um, Lawrence Dobkin's 16, which was the double feature with a teenager. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, I just I feel it. I feel the sound. I feel it. Feel it in me. <laughs> You can tell what kind of movies I'm watching because I just feel it in me, feel it in my bones. But this movie does a really good job, as Roger and Quentin said, because it it flips that trope where it's like Jan Michael Vincent is like that really, like really handsome guy. And you think, oh, he's going to be kind of a jerk. And then there's this Billy girl. And like, how is this going to work out? And yeah, he has a heart of gold. Mm-hmm. It's like in the very first moment when they show Whitey, I'm thinking, oh, my God, is he going to start bullying Whitey? Like, is this where it's going there in the bathroom? I started getting mm-hmm. a little nervous. Mm-hmm. Like, is he just, is he the villain? No, it's like Whitey's his best friend. Mm-hmm. They're like laying in bed next to each other, like hanging out. It's like his brother, basically. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I knew that he was like trying to get with Billy for sex because the guys kind of talked about it. But I didn't pick up on the sex thing being like the driving motivating factor actually between him and Billy at first. I don't know if it's just like the mindset that I was in while watching it, but I was actually really hung up on the moment where uh, Whitey goes and tries to get with Buster's girlfriend's friend and she's really, really mean to Whitey Mm -hmm. and like really aggressively mean to him. And then the two girls are kind of laughing about it. And when Buster shows up, he actually defends Whitey and he gets mad at his girlfriend for her friend's actions. Yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. I forgot yeah. that uh, that they were being like mean girls. They were to, being mean to girls Whitey. to Whitey, and I was like, "Wow, he actually really cares about him." And so that's kind of what I thought the motivating factor behind him and Billy was, is because he was just like sick of this girl. <laughs> this girl's kind of a bitch. Sorry, but she wasn't being villain mean. She's just she was laughing with her best friend about the guy her best friend didn't want to have to make out with. I, mean, I can gonna, understand I'm that. To be honest, I wouldn't want to make out with. Whitey, I know. I know. So <laughs> okay, so you're describing her like a villain in a movie, and she's a not foil. quite. A, she's not she's quite a, a foil. She's more of a foil. He's really upset at his girlfriend. So I kind of thought that was the motivating factor behind him and Billy, not necessarily so much the sex aspect of it. But no, I think it's reading the back of the box. It's clearly the set. I don't know what I was thinking when yeah, I was yeah. watching. No, it's but... the only reason he's. I just even know her. I, I mean, know. I'm just like, he's... wow, he's just approaching this like random girl who barely can communicate. Like at yeah. first, I thought like, is she like handicapped in some way that she can't communicate with him? But no, I think she's just. She's just so with. I mean, the with... well, well, I, I think in in his case, I, look, I uh, look. If I was gonna, if I was gonna shine an even harsher microscope on the film. It doesn't really quite make sense the way it's dramatized of, you know, six guys hooting and hollering and seeming violent and scary that they show up at Billy's house every weekend and she just goes off with them and they, you know, they all fuck her at one time and then leave her in the, in the leaves. You know, I, I don't, I don't buy that version of what they're selling as a real human thing. I would like to have seen more of the dynamic between how the group of guys actually 
responded to her and how they actually worked it out in a way that wasn't as cliched as that because they're as yeehaw i'm next you know that's a movie thing that's not how that would really really fall but in the case of like her with 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 buster is like she's almost monosyllabic because she can't even believe that a guy like buster is 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 in in the same car with her yeah and one of the most touching scenes for me is when she gives him the gift that she's made for him mm-hmm. that weird keychain that like mm-hmm. i was like what is that like is it just like a piece of scrap metal with some beads on it mm-hmm. and she's so genuine when she gives it to him yeah. and he's so happy to get it because it's not like his girlfriend's not going to yeah. make him that. Kind well, of he thing. has that. Well, he has that thing that William Cat has in Tommy Ross. He's going out of his way to be gentlemanly and out of his way to be appreciative. All right, to a girl who has never been shown any appreciation and has never been shown any affection. When it's like, oh wow, I love gifts. You know, it, well, it's just it just melt it melts your heart. Yeah. It makes you or, root for them. It melts your heart that he's just going out of his way to show show her the kind of considerations that a charming boy would show a girl that she's never been shown. And I think you guys made a really good point because she is like that kind of pariah. And when he brings her to church, they make it a point that she is non-Christian. Like her family is not Christian. So it's not just that she's a pariah in like the school, but also just like in the town itself. Yeah, yeah. Because she's an outsider. And he really is trying to bring her in. Mm-hmm. And it is really touching. And that scene when he brings her to church and the girl's like, mm-hmm. like oh my God, is that my boyfriend with Billy of all people? Like mm-hmm. the whore? Yeah, yeah. It's great. And he just is like proud to be with her. And I love the scene when he introduces her to the preacher, you yeah. know, and he goes, this is Billy. She'll be coming around here a lot more often. Well, good to have you around here, Billy. Yeah, because like they <laughs> want people to yeah. become. It's the Christian way. It's of- the Christian way. You yeah. accept people into your hearts. Um, there's like a few connections. Okay, first off, that song at the very end of the movie. The Hoyt Axton song. Yeah, which Bill, is, Billy's theme. Which is Billy's theme, which it's Actually, funny. The, the, you have the lyrics, but yeah. it reminds me of Sonny and Jed because in Sonny and Jed, it's <laughs> Sonny's theme. It's not Jed's theme. And uh-huh. in this movie, it's Billy. It's not Buster's theme. It's yeah, Billy's yeah. theme. Well, it's funny because the the main lyric, which is the the top lyric, is kind of like a thesis for the movie, which is, and I'm not going to even try to do the Hoyt Axton you know, uh, draw. Yeah. The draw. Uh, I never dream. You know, I never dream. <laughs> I, I was about, I, I, I want you to do it. Saying, I wasn't going to do it. I, I never dreamed you'd mean a thing to me, <laughs> but when I needed your loving, you gave me love. That's the way it ought to be. Okay. I do not know the theme itself. So I <laughs> you were, faked you were it. Close. I faked it, but I never dreamed you'd mean a thing to me. But when I needed your loving, you gave me love the way it ought to be. Well, okay, it's almost just like the way the the song in Carrie when they're dancing around is just like describing. (laughs) Could it be that the lady is me in the photograph? (laughs) Roger did not read the best part of the lyrics, though, in my opinion, though. Oh, really? Sweet country days, my memories are clear. And I remember the laughter. Sure, miss the laughter. Heaven, you were here. It's just so sad. It's so touching. It's just, Mm -hmm. it really gets you. So I have a little bit of history about the movie actually pulled from the website, which is busterandbilly.com. That's B-I-L-L-I-E, by the way. Um, there is no streaming on this movie, but you can purchase a DVD or Blu-ray straight from the website. But they have a website? They have a website specifically for this movie. Wow. And it's because of the movie went missing for a mm-hmm. while. So... This is from AFI and the studio production notes from the Ampus library files. The writer Tuberville based the film's character on people he knew in high school, specifically a girl he dated who was known as Gangbang. <laughs> Tuberville stated 
Almost, so, almost wish that was her name in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> where did that, where did, how come he left that out? So Tuberville <laughs> must be Buster then. Yeah. And Billy is gangbang. Right. Turberville, the screenwriter, stated that the girl was abused by her parents, had no clothes, and was starved for attention. And similar girls were ubiquitous in American high schools at the time. Roger Ebert called it an affecting story well told. It observes its teenage characters with a fine insight, and it almost earns its tragic ending. Happy endings used to be Hollywood cliches. Now, if we ever got one, it would almost feel original. Got you Rocky in 1976. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, he gets his whip. Apparently, Buster and Billy went missing. So during the theatrical release, Columbia Pictures had a brief period of time that they owned the rights, and then they were returned to Ted Mann Productions, which was the original production company. It would take until the early 1980s before there was interest in releasing the film to a brand new sort of media, VHS. Um, in order to produce the quality copy that we watched, a transfer of the original film master known as the Internegative would be needed. When the production company reached out to Columbia for that film master, they were told it had either been lost or destroyed. So a lower grade theater copy of the film on 35 millimeter was used to create the VHS and television versions. Why it looks so good. As time went on, even the 35-millimeter copies of Buster and Billy became scarce, so demand for the movie was growing, and many early critics had underestimated the cult classic film. VHS rental tapes became the media of choice, and there were a lot of low-quality DVD bootlegs. And then in early 2019, after seeing the film, a man named Seth Doherty began to look into the pop culture mystery, and he planned a remaster based off of an old 35 millimeter theater copy that he had tracked down in Australia. And so he worked really hard and he restored the film to Blu-ray. Mm. So now you can get a Blu-ray of it if you so desire, but the tape worked just fine for me. One of the actors that's uh, in the film was a guy named Bruce Atkinson. He's the uh, the guy who plays the sheriff in it. Uh, he's the one telling about what happened with Buster and everything, and then all of a sudden he gets the call about. Oh, that's a good. That's a good sequence. So that guy Bruce Atkins, he was actually uh, my first acting mentor. He, oh. When I first started um, doing anything outside of school, I started going to uh, uh, the uh, Torrance Community Theater when I was sixteen, lying about my age, saying I was eighteen, and he was starring in a play at the Torrance Community Theater at that time, the Knights of the White Magnolia, the last meeting of the Knights of the White Magnolia. And then uh, he became a, a buddy, and I started working in the theater company for like a couple of years. And he was this really great guy. He was this actor from Atlanta and back in the 50s, and he was in the actor studio with Paul Newman and then uh, Joanne Woodward in New York, became an Atlanta actor. He's got a nice, another nice fat sheriff role in uh, uh, Grease Lightning. And he asked in, in um, the movie Moonrunners, which was what Dukes of Hazard was based on, mm -hmm. Bruce Atkins played the original Roscoe Coltrane <laughs> in Moonrunners. So I had two acting mentors and both of them were Roscoe Coltrane. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Bruce Atkins and James Bess. What an amazing year this was. I mean, Badlands comes out this year. Yeah. Phantom of the Paradise comes out this year. Buster and Billy. You can watch it on Can't Get It Streaming. You can get a DVD Blu-ray. I got my RCA Columbia first edition tape for $21.96. Who releases that Blu-ray? Do you know? Um, No, I don't know, but it, you can buy it directly from their website. Fantastic. The Buster and Billy website. Busterandbilly.com. That's B-I-L-L-I-E. Baxter. Méfiez-vous du chien qui pense. And we're back. And the second film is a French film from the 
early 90s that I saw at the theaters when it came out called Baxter. It's actually called Baxter, but after you've seen the movie, you can never say the word Baxter. You can never say the name Baxter again without saying it like the way that the dog says it in the movie. Baxter. Hello, I'm Baxter. I'm Baxter. It was 1989. 1989. This was during the time um, I was dating my first real girlfriend, which was uh, uh, Grace Lovelace. She was uh, at the store. As you worked at the store, and we saw like during the three years we were together, we saw a zillion movies together, and uh, Baxter was one of them. And we saw it at the uh, played for a week at the New Art in uh, West LA. We went and saw it, and I think it actually was probably one of like her favorite movies that we saw during that entire three years of going out to the movies all the time. And uh, she really, really responded to it. I responded to it, and then in '91, I start the film festival circuit with Reservoir Dogs. I've just made Reservoir Dogs and I start the film festival circuit. And so I'm going around to, I've gone from having barely left Los Angeles County, except for a few other times, to finally uh, 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 going on to different continents. I went to the Yubari Fantastic Film Festival in Yubari, Japan, which was an incredible, incredible time. It's one of the greatest film festivals. It was really, it was a lot of fun. Kelly and- Zoe won that festival oh, wow. one year. And well, Jerome Bavon was uh, uh, at that festival. And that was back when I went to a film festival. I was there for the entire length of the festival. So we were just in Yubari, Japan. Everybody showed up at the beginning of the festival and they left at the end. And so for this whole week, we were in uh, the snow-covered Yubari, Japan. I'd never been around snow that much in my life. I had not seen Baxter since I saw it then, but I really liked hanging out with Jerome. And it was obvious how much I liked his movie when we talked about it. And then Myself and Roger were talking, and I saw the box there, and I just, hey, I think this kind of falls into that perfect Roger movie that Roger doesn't know about yet. And so- uh, And I actually knew about it because you told me to see it. Way back when, yeah. And I didn't see it. No, <laughs> and, no so I- bring, so, so it was kind of perfect, actually. So I start bringing it up to Roger, and Roger, no, I've always wanted to see that movie for, like, from when you're bringing it up. Now's the time, so let's just do it. Okay, so here's the, me reading the back of the box uh, to- Baxter. It says Baxter, and then the tagline is Beware of the dog that thinks. Baxter is the strange tale of a dog whose unusual ability to think drives him to human scale destruction. Told from the dog's point of view, Baxter is moved from owner to owner, revealing as much of their thoughts as of his own. The dark satire bears its teeth at pet ownership and at our dog-eat-dog world. In the French section, under the B's, and the number of the tape is 8143. Okay, Quentin, I love uh, the poster for this movie. I love yeah. the that deep red with the big, bold, block-like type, you know, the sans-serif mm-hmm. type, Baxter! Mm-hmm. And then Baxter himself, like, white against that yeah. red background. But there's weird shadows on him. But I'm in full agreement with you about this video box and the little word bubbles, yeah. the uh, little thought bubbles coming out of Baxter. I think it throws a kind of the wrong spin on what the contents of the box is. I I, I do too. That's why I'm not even tempted to read any of the, the thought bubbles on there. And the, the main reason that I... I I didn't like it was, uh, especially when I was getting ready to show it to you, I was like, don't read that stuff. And the reason I said don't read that stuff is because the film has an eerie 
weird tone. Yeah, and you need to wade into that slowly, like yeah. going from uh, the I, uh, pool to the hot tub. You yeah, got to move slowly into that hot tub. Yeah, I didn't want the. I, since you're going to watch it anyway, I didn't want that tone revealed. All right, uh, uh, on the stupid video box. I wanted you. No, no, I wanted to be revealed I, in the course of the film. I agree. I agree, hundred percent. Okay, so now let me describe the movie in a little bit more detail than that. In the 60s, there was a, a studios were doing a whole lot of uh, uh, kids kind of movies that they would make and then uh, uh, just release them on Saturday and Sunday releases, you know, in, in, in theaters for uh, 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 kitty matinees. And there was a lot of films like that. There was this one movie with Keenan Wynn called Fearless Fagan about a lion. And then there was the Jay North movie, which was really kind of had a, end up being very strange. Zebra in my kitchen was one. Um, uh, and then there was this movie called A Dog's Life. Now, the thing about it is they, they got a lot of push in the 60s during the uh, children's matinee time, but they all found themselves on television in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, you know, during the, you know, during the afternoon on local television. And there was this one movie called It's a Dog's Life, and it had um, a dog just like Bextah, all right, uh, a, a bull terrier, a, that Spud McKenzie yeah, kind Spud of dog. Spud McKenzie, yeah. And it's just a story of how this dog, all right, goes from uh, one master to another, and the dog is narrating it. You know, and he kind of narrates it in a voice like this. <laughs> so it's a, it's just a dog's I'm life. I'm a dog. I'm a dog, and I go into this kind of story, <laughs> and you know, yeah. It's always a friendly man's best friend. Yeah, well, but he's also kind of a regular guy, you know, kind of, like the guy kind of like hangs man's around. Man's best it, friend. Yeah. You know, you know. <laughs> In a bar kind of guy, you know. <laughs> like Norm. Yeah, 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 cheers. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. I can see him voicing a, uh, a dog <laughs> character. So this movie kind of existed. I remember seeing it once when I was a kid. I thought it was, when I was a kid, I thought it was clever enough. Okay. Backstab, which is based on a book, is pretty much exactly the disturbing version of It's a Dog's Life. Even like down to the fact that it's the same kind of dog. And it's the same type of story. Baxter is narrating the story for you. The dog is narrating the story. And it's just how his perception of life and how he moves from uh, uh, one owner to the next, to the next, to the next. The movie's coming from a far more fucked up, more disturbing place. And what I really like about the movie is its commitment to its fucked upness. Yeah, it's it's more in the realm of white dog. The <laughs> it, Well, no, it's it's very much in the realm of white dog. And as much as I like white dog, this is a more realized version. Yeah. You could tell that- White dog is a little sloppy. White dog is really, white dog is really good. It's just not as realized as you can imagine the movie might've been in Sam Fuller's head. Yeah. This is the real, this is the more realized version of white dog. I think- this is more like what Sam Fuller wanted. So it's told from the point of view of, of, of Baxter's point of view. And then it moves. Uh, an old lady owns him for a while. Then a young, uh, sexy couple owns him for a while. Then a kid owns him for a while. And, and the movie's chaptered. In those yeah, things. and the movie's chaptered into this thing. But what makes it really, really, really special, aside from all these weird, crazy, weird characters that exist in this village that we get to know. We get to know the entire street of people. Uh, uh, quite well and in, in quite detail. You know, the diamond bullet, the diamond bullet of this movie is it realistically presents a dog's point of view on life. But he dog, only knows what humans are teaching it. Yeah. The dog only knows the dog's point of view. He doesn't understand the human being's point of view. He yeah. doesn't understand all the 
the uh, the whys and the wherefores of so uh, of human social interaction. It, it, he can only look at it from a dog's point of view, and, and he's almost crippled by a um, you know thousands of years of domestication. Absolutely, and it's so cleverly and so uh, uh, authentically holds on to the dog's point of view. Baxter really only knows what Baxter knows. Baxter can only figure out what Baxter has facts to figure out. And sometimes his facts are wrong because he's coming from a dog's perspective. Like Uh, like when he's with the old lady at one point, he says, I don't know what she wants. She gives no order. She asks nothing of me except for boring things like staying beside her. Yeah. Like he can't understand it. He just can't understand it. He wants a firm hand, you know? Uh, um, This film is just so nasty. It's so clever. It's so disturbing in a delicious kind of way. That was my take on it. What, what did you think, Roger? You know, Jacques Odiart wrote this. Uh, mm-hmm. Wrote this. Uh, people probably know him now from Rust and Bone or A Prophet. Mm-hmm. A Prophet is probably his great uh, his great achievement. Over over his career, you kind of recognize that his cinema is always critical of France. That he's always turning like a light to its shortcomings and to its failings and analyzing it, but He's also kind of constantly in all of his movies discussing like the burdens of fatherhood and how encumbered the weight it is on a man mm-hmm. to be a father. And as I was watching this movie, I started thinking, wow, this, there's a lot of that in here. I mean, he's, he's a writer of this. This isn't mm-hmm. one of his movies he directed, but Odiard is really strong in this film. What I was shocked about after watching this movie, because it is such a strong, powerful vision it's 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 such a dark vision and and because it embraces its darkness i was like what happened to jerome boivin this guy is an uh, an amazing talent this guy is an amazing director this is a striking vision that is at the time unique well from having known him the thing about it is i agree and 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 i don't have an answer for it i mean uh his follow-up film was a film called uh barajo also known as confessions of barajo and i have it i'm holding it here on video cassette but i've never watched it I, when I met him and I found out that he did another movie, I couldn't wait to see it. I, I bought the video, I, I think, at uh, uh, Tower Video. I bought the video at Tower Video, and I never got around to uh, uh, watching it. So I think we, it's we, a, we owe it to ourselves to watch it. Yeah, It's an adaptation of a Philip K. Dick novel, mm-hmm. Confessions of a Crap Artist. It's his least sci-fi work, Philip K. Dick's least oh. sci-fi work. But um, it's an adaptation of that. And I, you know, in wanting to know what happened to Wovan, I called a friend of mine in Paris, Fatih Bediar, who's a like a, a very resourceful critic. He knows everything. And I said, Hey, what happened to this guy? And he was like, you know, I don't know. That's a very good question. I know that he teaches at Femis, which is, I mean, the, uh, school for, um, especially if, if you want to know how to direct actors and how to work with people. And, um, and he teaches there and I can easily see how this guy would be a magnificent teacher. I mean, Femis, it seems like anybody who's anybody, uh, if they're, not currently making movies, they're teaching at Femis. Bob Swaim yeah. teach, teaches at Femis. I mean, I, I could, <coughs> I could start rattling off, you know, all the French directors who teach there. It would be a great like film school to go to. And so I know that he's there, but uh, my friend Fatih said uh, he thinks that um, his uh, adaptation of Confessions of a Barjo uh, is he th- he thinks he called it beyond words awesome beyond words really, really the most inspired adaptation of Philip K Dick up there with Blade Runner and A Scanner Darkly and so i have, and i only found out that out this morning and so i'm like okay i've got to track down this movie i see you have it on tape and mm-hmm. so we may be watching this film soon yeah great good for, deal for fun 
you know, but especially as a movie that uh, uh, I'm saying is kind of a Roger movie that was it. Would- well, this is totally a Roger movie that Roger probably wouldn't have made. Uh-huh. One, because um, it's outside of my skill set. Two, the way he handles this animal, this dog, mm-hmm. and the thoughts of the dog, and how com- when 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 you say he commits, he's committing to a kind of darkness that you know, in 1989 was still a little verboten. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is, uh, you know, the one line in the movie that I kept thinking about again and again is because this little boy that uh, eventually Baxter comes to, Mm -hmm. this little kid is obsessed with Hitler. Hitler and the the fascists. And fascists. And uh, um, turns out Hitler had all these dogs and, you know, and and, and he's talking to this girl about how she's like Eva Braun and, Mm And he literally says, oh, well, it would have been a great love story if it wasn't Hitler. Yeah. And I keep thinking about that in relation to Baxter, like, Mm -hmm. because in a way, Baxter is also kind of a love story, a failed love story that ends Mm -hmm. in terrible tragedy. He doubles down constantly on going places where you just don't expect he's going to go. And it starts revealing that, whoa, this is like a horror movie. Well, one of the things you have to remember is while the 80s were terrible in America, they weren't terrible in other countries. I mean, that, that's the time of Bomonovar. Yeah. That's the time of, uh, you know, all this wild stuff. So that was, you know, when you went to the Lemley Theaters, when you went to uh, 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 the New Art, when you went to the Music Hall, no, you were seeing wild ass shit. You just weren't seeing it coming out of Hollywood. You weren't seeing it coming out of America. You weren't seeing it coming out of Sundance. Well, especially in the late 80s and the early 90s, France was having this revolution of kind of fantastic films, Mm -hmm. movies that take place in fantastic locations with fantastic ideas and fantastic perspectives. And we were seeing things like, you know, uh, um, uh, Delicatessen coming out not too long after this. Uh And uh, this kind of revolution, I don't know if that revolution succeeded or failed, but Baxter is one of these movies that I just can't believe it's not better known, not better respected, not easier to get like- If I had to pick movies from the early- you know, from the beginning of the '90s, for the from the beginning of that decade, that I would have thought would have carried on as cult films and be more talked about and more known today, I would have thought Baxter would be would would be one of those movies from having seen it back then. And one of the things that we were talking about when it came to Jerome watching the film was um, he he's nothing like Omar but it's just easy to compare him because Motivar deals with darkness and comedy and sexuality he deals with darkness and violence and 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 a little bit of sexuality uh but in a comedy way they couldn't really be more far apart in a lot of ways but in a world where there exist 15 omotivar films that were released in america and and get art house releases there should be a world where at least four Jerome Bavon films out there, you know, that all got released uh, in America. Yeah. I think he did. I think he moved into television and did a bunch of TV, none of which I've um, had an opportunity to see, Mm -hmm. but um, this movie has moments of beauty that are, I think, transcendent and not even that have nothing to do with the dog. Mm -hmm. Like there's um, in, in one of the chapters, one of the various chapters, the, uh, after the old woman has um, Mm -hmm. passed away, Mm -hmm. There's this old man who was in love with her, this like unrequited love that had lasted a lifetime that he had never connected with her. And then she dies Mm -hmm. and he goes to her grave. And there's a moment where he has him in a profile in a close up. Yeah. And then suddenly 
she's dead and suddenly she comes in just next to him mm-hmm. and she's brightly lit. He's in the graveyard in the dark. And, and out of focus. And soft. and soft focus and in a chiaroscuro lighting. And then suddenly she kind of appears just next to, just, mm-hmm. just after him also in profile. And she's kind of brightly lit and it's like her ghost or his memory of her. And he, the way he shows, it's such a, a simple. And she's lowering him to the grave. It's pure cinema. It's a yeah. pure cinema moment. He's using the language of cinema, and it's so great to watch how, um, when in that moment when he passes away, how he kind of just leans into her. It's there's no fanciful well, you, effects other than lighting. No, and it's, it, it, and no it's, it's, it's it's Coppola kind of stuff. All right, where you know it's uh, absolutely like something out of Tucker or yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the the lights change and you realize the walls a scrim and the scrim yeah. moves away. Yeah, one from the heart, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but it's all done through theatrical lighting. Is, yeah, is how how it's achieved. Um, and then also, I just have to say, Maxime Larue playing Baxter mm-hmm. with his voice. Yeah. I mean. The movie works largely, even if you don't speak French, the movie works with his voice, the way he speaks, you know, the boy. Uh, you, 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 you can't disassociate the movie from the guy's voice. Like, All right. It's, it's, it's uh, like, what would this movie even be without that guy's voice? I mean, it, it is, it's the movie. He reminded me of, <laughs> and it's not the same actor, but he reminded me of that guy in Diva, you know, I hate Beethoven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hate Beethoven. <laughs> kind of like, <laughs> he has, and it's that kind of comedy though. It's that same kind of yes, uh-huh. uh, humor. Like his performance is so rich and so great. I don't really know anything about now, the, the, the uh, Maxime other, LaRue. To back up what you said, one of the things that was really nice in the sequence that you're talking about, that's also the point in time watching the film a second time where I realized, oh, because you just describe it's about a dog who goes from different owners. Well, that, that you think you kind of understand it, but actually- it's not even the people in this town. It's all the people that live on this one street. Yeah. And that was when I realized, oh shit, we're really actually getting to know these people. Yeah. There's a, you know, there's about, uh, 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 well, you mentioned Buster and Billy in the little neighborhood town yes, and everything. Uh, well, and, that, and that same, humor. I was thinking that when I was talking about Buster and Billy, you get to know a handful of characters, but you get to know them more than you would, you would expect to, especially with this premise. Yeah. You would expect, uh, uh, yeah, we, Get to know everybody lives on the, the, the three fucking houses that are all catty corner with each other. But what's great about the movie? It's just committed to fucked upness. I mean, it's just a hundred percent committed to its fucked up premise, and that's just a breath of fresh air. Yeah, and he's got all these like kind of classic French actors, <laughs> like you know, Lise Delamere as uh, Madame Deville mm-hmm. and Jean Macure, those two characters, mm-hmm. the two old yeah, people. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're both classic actors who were in, you know, she was yeah. in Captain Blood. Mm-hmm. She, you know, he's like, these people have been around forever in France. And so they're like well-known, at least at that time in mm-hmm. the late eighties. And so the kind of lamentations that are going on with them, the sort of unrequited love and the, I mean, in a macro way, he's discussing France and yeah, he's yeah. discussing rural France. And I, the book is an American book. I, I mean, oh, it is. It's, it's based on it's based on a uh, an English novel based on Hellhound, nineteen seventy seven, by Ken Greenhill, who wrote under the pseudonym of his mother's name, Jessica Hamilton. He also wrote another book called Elizabeth, and they're considered two beloved horror novels in oh, the seventies. I don't know if I would call Baxter a horror film. Well, it's not. It's not. It's a black comedy. It's a black comedy. It's a black. It's a black comedy. comedy. Yeah. It's it's no more a horror film than Delicatessen is a horror. No, film. I wouldn't call it Delicatessen. Which, which is a horror not film. a horror film. It's yeah, 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 yeah. More of like a. It's a comedy. Yeah. It's a weird comedy, but a comedy. Yeah. It's a fantastic film. Yes. Okay. 
We're back and we're joined by the lovely Gala. So, Gala, did you say bonjour to Baxter? I did say bonjour to Baxter. And let me tell you. Did you say bonsoir as well? Or bonne bon, nuit, bonne 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 nuit. <laughs> Okay, guys, let me just get that out of the way. I did not like Baxter. <laughs> but the days following, I found myself loving Baxter. <laughs> It's not a it's not a pleasant experience not, entirely. Okay, and those of you who know me know I don't like animal violence in movies, and it's really hard for me to watch. And it, I'm gonna get emotional. I'm God, Quentin, you got me with Buster and Billy, and then you get me with Baxter. <laughs> I'm watching it. I'm thinking if this was not for the podcast, I would have turned it off because it's so hard to watch, and I'm I can't turn it off. It's for the podcast. I have to keep watching, and I'm really glad I did, and I didn't enjoy myself one bit watching it. And I think one of the reasons why I didn't enjoy myself at all is because the narration is so good. Mm-hmm. When you're listening to the narration, you forget that Baxter's a dog. At a certain point, it's like you're listening to it. And I started getting like upset at thinking like, God, this character is like really like terrible. Like if this was a, a person character, I really wouldn't like him. And then at a certain point in the movie, you remember this is not a sociopath. This is just a dog. <laughs> And that all dogs are basically sociopaths. And also, and also, all <laughs> and then do- a dog needs a master. Well, also, all yeah, dogs yeah. are what you make them, what yeah, you yeah, make yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. You, they, they, they rise to the level of the human that is their master. Yeah, I don't know if I. But ever- they want to fuck. They want to kill. They want to. Yeah, they want to give into their basic instincts, but they also want to be obedient. He actually says yeah, at yeah. one point, um, "It feels like a chain tightening around my neck. It hurts, so I obey. But there's more to it. It gives me pleasure." The greatest pleasure I've ever had. He commands and I obey. Yeah. He's fulfilling his purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Because he loves the boy for that. He mm-hmm. loves the boy, that, that the fact that the boy is hard on him. Mm-hmm. The movie is really good because one of the things that ties all of the characters together is this affair that's going on mm-hmm. between the school teacher, which is the old man's daughter, and the father, or not the father of the little boy that takes him eventually, but the husband of yeah. the woman who eventually has the baby. And, well, the, school, the school teacher is the mother of the little boy. And the school teacher is the mother of the little boy. So it's yeah, like yeah. this this affair that's happening with all these people is kind of what ties it together. And mm-hmm. as you're watching Baxter, you start to realize, like, one, yes, this dog is sexually motivated mm-hmm. uh, because it's primal instinct. But all creatures are sexually motivated. On Earth. <laughs> And I think that's but it's even presented in the 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 uh, the group of people on that street on that street, yeah, because they're tied together with this affair that completely ruins their life, and therefore Baxter's kind of being bounced between them because of the results of this affair, Mm -hmm. and it's done so well that like you start to forget like Baxter is a dog because he's just feeling the same thing that these people are feeling, Mm -hmm. and Roger mentioned the scene, the death scene with the old man. That's done so well. Like that was. It's one of the it best actually, scenes I've seen all year. It, it actually like, popped me out visually. It's such a powerful scene. The other scene that is really incredible in this movie is the scene with the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, when the baby, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. finally falls into the pool, mm-hmm. and Baxter has decided that he's gonna like wait mm-hmm. to bark, mm-hmm. and then he barks too soon. And when the father is running, they do like this like weird like fast but slow motion mm-hmm. when he 
jumps over the the hedge and like into the pool. And it's like this really jarring moment that I can only imagine is how you feel when your baby has fallen into the pool. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how they captured well, that. Yeah, so the movie makes you feel these uncomfortable feelings that you don't want to feel, but you're feeling them anyways. And that's part of the sensation of going to movies mm-hmm. is living and experiencing things you wouldn't necessarily want to experience in real life. That plus the kid's crazy obsession. Well, this kid's crazy obsession, but like at the beginning of the movie, I find myself like literally I was writing notes and I'm like, you have to love a dog. I'm not a dog person, just so you know. Like this is like a cat. Person. I'm a cat person. So like you have to like love your animal. But I I was thinking about our my cat, the uh, yeah, Merlin. Merlin, who is like a little tough, you know, mm-hmm. cat. He's like just We call him Buster. And he and Actually. he's he's a white cat who's <laughs> he's like a white cat, like Baxter is a white dog. And right after this movie, I went home and I was like looking at him and he's like all tough and running around like a cat. And, <laughs> and I was thinking, oh my God, it's like Baxter. He's like in his mind thinking his things, you know, Roger doesn't understand me or why won't Roger give me the food that I want? You know, why doesn't he give me fresh water you know, like, or whatever, you know? Oh, look at that bird outside. I wish I could kill it. Yeah, I want, yeah. To, I want to kill it tomorrow, maybe. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I think is so interesting because Roger talks about the little boy and like his weird obsession with like fascism and Hitler and Ava mm-hmm. Braun and all this stuff. And it plays into his own love story with this girl that he knows in town and there's a moment where Baxter finally gives in to his primal desires mm-hmm. and urges of sex. <laughs> and that is when the boy stops respecting him. No, I don't think that's the truth. You that, don't that, think so? No, that's, that's just ba- no, it's, it's Baxter's feeling. It's, ba- it's Baxter. What do you mean? Baxter is like, uh, the, the oh, boy. I, 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 I hate that uh, the, the, the dog. No, yeah, no, I no, couldn't no, resist. No, I, the boy I would, would do it again if I had to. <laughs> if she was put in front of me right now, I would do it again. No, the boy was just was hooking. I'm ashamed. He was hooking Baxter up. He knew the bitch yeah. was in heat, all right? So he wanted to uh, bring her there so uh, he, uh, Baxter could have his fun. But Baxter's just because... The boy has been so regimented with him, all right, and he has made him such a soldier, all right, for him to just give in to his base desires. And like, feel shame. Of, like, canine pussy, all right, <laughs> you know, uh, amongst, you know, against his uber god, all yeah. right. He, he he saw me at my weakest. He saw me just giving in yeah. to the basest emotions. I am so ashamed of myself. I'm so ashamed. I wonder if humans feel the same. I just want to mention the music in this movie, sure, which ahead. I found to be terrific. Mm-hmm. The The score of this film was like the stuff that Wes Anderson would mine later on for his movies, mm-hmm. or you might see in like Napoleon Dynamite or something like mm-hmm. that kind of harpsichord. When, uh, when the kid's on the bike with Baxter, specifically. Like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Very about. modern kind of harpsichord style music almost, especially when it's the good times. Yeah, yeah. the happy I mean, times. Especially. And so I, I looked up these- the two, happy days. Yeah, I looked up these composers, <laughs> um, Mark Hillman and Patrick Rofe, and both of them stopped working in 1999 mm-hmm. um, after making a movie called uh, Pure Moment of Rock and Roll, <laughs> and uh, never to be heard from again. And I, I couldn't even find them. I found out that Hillman, his actual name is Mark Ishbia. Mm-hmm. I'm convinced I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Eh, but you probably are. I've heard of couple of people named Ishmael. But, and I think these guys were like uh, electronic music guys. Mm-hmm. I think uh, th- that's the best I can deduce from what I was able to find. But if anybody out there actually knows anything about them, I would be interested in knowing what happened to them because uh, it's two composers and both of them seems like they both exited cinema after uh, a couple of years after Baxter. Also, I was just say one thing I really like about Baxter when I think about it is that 
no matter how hard he tries to be bad, in the end, he's somehow always good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really, like, he saves the old lady that one time. Yeah, even yeah. though I think he's trying to tug her down the stairs. Yeah, yeah, and, that, he, yeah. and she's like, oh, Baxter, save me. Baxter, save me. And then, like, when he barks for the little baby, he's still the hero yeah. in the family. They're still yeah. like, we. I don't know what we would have done without that dog. Like, that mm-hmm. dog is great. And in the end, yes, like, the, the kid lies and stuff, but... He's still, I don't know. It's just like he's still the a good dog. Well, there even is, when yeah. he's a ba- even when he's a bad dog, he's still a good well, dog. He's still a good dog. No, that's that's actually very true. Well, there is there is no actual good or bad. There is only true or false w- with respect to you know you're either true. Well, actually, to- I think God was saying something else. He is a good dog. He's a good he's a good boy. He's yeah, a good boy. He's, even though well, he's you know, not so good to that old lady. But, but well, he, <laughs> well hey, actually, I have to ask one question. Sort of. <laughs> why why does her like, okay, is it her daughter-in-law and her son, or is it her daughter and son-in-law? No, it's her, uh, her daughter and son-in-law. Okay, so why do they give her this dog? Companionship. They, Companionship. They, they don't give a shit about her, all right? And she's and, and she says, like, why don't you visit us more? So here's a fucking dog to take your... Uh, we can't stand dogs, so here's a fucking dog to leave us alone. I literally thought, like, did they train Baxter to kill her? Like, I literally started thinking that at one point, like... <laughs> All this invisible writing from Gala. There's, I was like, it's what? white dog. White dog <laughs> against old ladies, though. Yes, exactly. White dog for old ladies. <laughs> so how did you see? Uh, how did you see? I uh, did. I show? actually, you know what? I actually did see this on VHS because my man Frankie Latina, Frankie Latina. I don't know how he has these VHS tapes, but honestly, I'm like, I'm searching for Baxter. There was one on Amazon, and I'm like, I don't want to buy a VHS tape on Amazon. That's scary. I'm I'm really scared to buy one on there because I've heard really bad stories. And Frankie Latino always has <laughs> like a monster's going to come out of the box the way you describe this story. <laughs> it just it's like, it's like a, a J horror film, the, 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 the curse of the Amazon video. I'm going to get like right. a ring tape on there yeah, or something. Exactly. No, but Frankie Latino's video vault always has what I need, and they're always really good prices. I got it for twenty dollars. Actually, it's the exact same copy that you guys have, that Fox Lorber mm-hmm. copy. And just for everyone out there, this movie is not available on streaming. Apparently, though, there is a Blu-ray copy available if you cannot find it on VHS. The building containing the diamonds has an alarm system that's connected to two nearby police stations. That's problem number one. The next is that the safe containing the diamonds is of enormous dimensions. Well, with plastic explosive, I can blow a safe any provided you dismantle the alarm system. Unfortunately, the system is sophisticated and absolutely impregnable. The instant we enter the building, the police will be alerted. And within 40 seconds, they'll be outside the building. The Fast Kill with Cohit, Buster, and Billy will be playing for one night only on Monday, April 17th at the new Beverly Cinema. 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. 90036. For tickets and more information, visit thenewbev.com. The new Beverly Cinema, always on film. Now we come on to our third movie, which is a, a British crime film from, uh, I believe, like 1974, uh, called The Fast Kill. And it is on a lovely Video Gems uh, big plastic box. I love this box. As video gems and as the heist, the getaway, the pursuit, the kill, the fast kill. And underneath it, it says fast cars, dot, 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 fast girls, dot, 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 fast action. <laughs> and that is not actually a lie. All right. Uh, I'm going to read the back. 
A fast kill. A story of international intrigue. International intrigue. Jet-setting lifestyles and unimaginable wealth abound in this suspenseful and fast-paced caper that spans three countries. Six professional terrorists have been assembled for the biggest heist in the history of crime. Steal over $20 million worth of uncut diamonds. The suspenseful heist and breathtaking getaway take the terrorist group through the streets of Paris and London to the lush island of Jersey in a series of hair-raising escapes from the law in hot pursuit. But as the tale unfolds, it is not the police who bring this band of criminals to justice, but Building Green. On the Isle, Jersey, the archivist boils over, and in a series of double crosses, each comes to his violent end. 94 minutes. Color. Copyright 1973. Lindsay Shontoff Film Productions. Why don't you read that? Now, we also have another cheapy a uh, six-hour version that Gala picked up, <laughs> but with a also not as cool as mine, but still nevertheless cool box. And this one was from Congress uh, Video Group, and um, Gala will uh, probably tell us where she got it and how she found it. But it is in a kind of faded—is that green or is that black? I think it used to be green, like black and yellow or green and yellow box, and it looks like they just truncated from the mm-hmm. Video Gems box. In this suspenseful and fast-paced caper, six professionals are brought together to steal 20 million worth of uncut diamonds. The heist and getaway take them through the streets of Paris and London to the lush island of Jersey, where a series of double-crosses brings each to his violent end. Okay, that was just a condensed they, they, version. They just kind of like, make it fit! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now The Fast Kill is directed by a director, writer, producer named Lindsay Shantoff. Now, you will never find a good review of Lindsay Shantoff's work in British publications or British magazines. They always, always make fun of him. He's like, they're, he, he's one of their sleaze merchants. Trying to come up with an, uh, trying to come up with an American equivalent, especially at, at that time of Lindsay Shantoff, you kind of have to go to Al Adamson mm-hmm. or uh, Fred Olin Ray Okay, but except the only thing that's wrong with that is like Lindsay Shantoff is like drastically better director. He is a real, by comparison to those guys, he's a real director. I'm not even putting those guys down. I actually kind of appreciate them in their own way. But their system is similar to Lindsay Shantoff's system where, you know, he would raise the money himself and he'd go out there and and uh, just like Al Adamson and Sam Sherman would do with their projects, they they come up with a something they think they could knock out. They probably do it in a, in a couple of weeks or like shoot it in a couple of weeks and spend another few months shooting little other scenes to make a full feature and uh, put them out. Now, his most known movie, Lindsay Shantoff, um, in the zeitgeist is probably uh, a movie he did with uh, uh, Harry Allen Towns, who is uh, Jess Franco's mm-hmm. producer, uh, called uh, The Million Eyes of Sumeru. But... Um, the one that got the most play, I, it had a different title in, in, in the UK, but in America, it was known as uh, the second best secret agent in the whole wide world. And that starred Tom Adams, who's the star of The Fast Kill. And it's a really fun James Bond takeoff. Yeah, right. He's not James Bond. He's the second. Yeah. And it's, super- but it's also kind of interesting agent. because they would do these James Bond spoofs. But since James Bond is also kind of a spoof, oftentimes these spoofs would just get too silly. 
this is about the same level of spoof as in an actual James Bond movie. Uh, and we watched it. We had a yeah. really good time. Yeah. We had a really good time. Tom Adams was really good at it. And the character Charles Vine was uh, like a lot of fun. Because they consider themselves to be in the same universe. Oh, they absolutely like, consider they, themselves. They make a couple of James Bond jokes. Like, well, he's, you know, he's an unavailable. So yeah. I'm here. Or James Bond just left. <laughs> yeah, All right. exactly. He was just in the room and he just left. And so they did a, uh, they did a, 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 a follow-up to that movie, not directed by Lindsay Shantoff, uh, directed by John Gilling, who's actually a better director, uh, called Where the Bullets Fly. That was a lot of fun. And now we're into uh, the 70s and Tom Adams gets together with Lindsay Shantoff again, except now not in a James Bond style thing, which it's, you know, seems Tom Adams forte, uh, but now done in a get Carter villain kind of Cockney crime film, you know, a lot of lads and, and, and bad accents. But the fast kill actually got probably the most theatrical play in America of any of his movies because the simple fact that AIP saw the fast kill, picked it up and released it as the lower half of their double feature for Hennessy. Oh, you know when, what? That, that actually makes sense because the in Hennessy, you know, you have that all the kind of found footage yeah. of uh, the changing of the guards and whatever. They do that in Fast Kill also. They're, mm-hmm. They they shoot like a, in a completely stolen like street <laughs> casting scene where they just mm-hmm. steal it during the changing of the guards. Yeah, got, yeah, yeah, yeah. They do. Ab- they've got absolutely. Tom Adams out there. Like they they do a little moment. Yeah, where well, the beef eaters do the changing of the guards. And, yeah, and that's yeah. just yet another <laughs> moment where Lindsay Shundoff is like, "How do I make the movie feel like a million bucks? Mm-hmm. How do we do it?" Well, it's a combination. He's doing two things. How do you make the movie feel like it is expensive, and also how do you pad it out to a, a feature length running time? Okay, so here's the thing about where I'm coming from on the fast kill. One, it's just exciting to find like another crime movie like this from the 70s that so absolutely reeks of the 70s, even especially British crime film 70s that I had never seen that to know that there's another one out there. All right, and then there was also something just great about how you could tell the whole production was done. I think maybe they had two weeks to shoot the whole thing, two and a half weeks at the most. And that's not counting the weekend that they went to Paris. And then they just shot a bunch of stuff in Paris without absolutely no permits, just did their own thing. Uh, probably talked some uh, cafe person for that one scene at the cafe. Yeah. yeah and they just like- a, a, Oh, I, that Rome scene was shot in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they the just Rome, put a Sinzano well, the Rome, the They Rome, put a Sinzano the Rome scene on was the shot, table. was shot in London <laughs> yeah. for sure. But the but the Paris cafe scene is really cool because you can tell they just, it's just a guy pointing a camera. They sat down at a Paris cafe and then, and you could see the, and the, uh, the Parisians in the background walking like, what the fuck's going on? Every time they walk through the frame because they see someone shooting a movie. Um, but I love that. And you rarely see it pulled off as well as they pull it off in uh, uh, in The Fast Kill. But then the thing that is just kind of amazing about the movie is the storyline itself, the bloodthirstiness of the storyline itself. So it starts off with Tom Adams and he's got his wife, his sort of his wife partner, sort of, you know, Alan McGraw to his Steve McQueen, uh, uh, Susie Hampton. And he's uh, starts off in the movie and he's planning the robbery. He's going to plan the robbery. And he's got, got these uh, five guys that he's going to, five or four guys that he's going to uh, enlist. And it's, you know, this kind of classic scene if you see him trying to enlist the guys for the, from the, in, uh, in the robbery. Now, 
it's the classic scenes, and we've seen this type of movie before, but because, again, they don't have much time, they're kind of rushing everything, uh, these scenes are shorter than they normally are, but that, but it ends up giving the movie a, a nice clip. Uh, you know, it almost reminds you of 30s movies you know, uh, and 40s movies to some degree. But Roger pointed out, and this was really interesting, is like some of the, you know, you, okay, he's talking to the explosive guy or he's talking to uh, the guy with uh, uh, the driver or whatever. They're not necessarily saying this great punchy dialogue. There's this, this weird mundaneness to the way they talk, but the mundaneness sounds realistic yeah. because they're not talking in purple prose or even wanting to be gangster speak that much, that the mundaneness almost comes across as realism. But then it comes down to, okay, so you're still not sure what's going on, what the plan is, what the heist is. Well, finally, he, through many different circumstances, some crazy backbiting, he eventually gets everyone he wants for the uh, the job. And he gets him in there and he explains the plan. And I'm going to pretty much explain the plan right now. Yeah, so Tom Adams like, okay, so here's the plan. We're out there for $20 million worth of uncut diamonds. And they're in this one warehouse and we have two things against us. It's connected to a, a burglar alarm that goes straight to the police. So the minute that safe is cracked open... The alarm will let the police know what's going yeah, on. They'll be here within a minute. They'll be here less than a minute. Yeah, less than a minute. They'll be here in 40 seconds. Okay. And the safe that we have to crack open is incredibly large. So they go to the, uh, they look to the demolition man. Goes, that doesn't matter. You give me the right kind of plastic explosives. I'll blow it away. What you need to do is how you're going to circumvent that alarm. Can't do it. Can't circumvent the alarm. Alarms, there's no way to figure it out. There's no way to uh, get to it. Uh, the minute the, the safe is open, the police are going to know about it. The police will be here in 40 seconds. Well, then how are we going to do this? Well, I've got a plan. So we open the safe. We have a minute and a half to clear out those diamonds. The police will be here within 40 seconds. So while we're still in there cleaning out the diamonds, that's why I have you two marksmen. You're to kill all the police that show up. Yeah. All, everyone. Just everyone. kill them. Kill Just them kill all. them. It's the That's idea. the plan. The police <laughs> will be there before we're done. You need to slaughter them all. Yeah. Okay. So it's two people with machine guns. So you, you slaughter the police. You have to slaughter them all. If you kill them all, then we can finish loading up. And then in a minute and a half, we have a minute and a half. Yeah, before they close the perimeter yeah. okay. of the neighborhood. Yeah. It's not all over yet. All right. So Because the thing about it is uh, in five minutes- uh, the way the town is set up is they can close the perimeter and they can block everybody in uh, into the town five minutes after the alarm happens. So the idea is they have a, a Indianapolis 500 driver driving them. So they they kill all the cops, they hop into the car with the diamonds, and they have three and a half minutes to get on the other side of the perimeter. Now, they can't stay on the big streets because the cops will find them there. But if the guy's driving 70 to 80 miles an hour through back streets and back alleys, he can get on the other side of the perimeter in three and a half minutes. Yeah, he's like, I've got to get all the way there. In, this, in, this, in three and a half minutes, I'll have to drive 70 miles per hour on average. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's like on average. Okay, so- this seems like a crazy motherfucking plan. Through narrow streets. Okay. This seems like, a, okay. Oh, and by the way, okay. And so there, and there's no, so there is a, like when they bring up, okay, well, no, the job is you have to slaughter the cops. 
And then like, so what are the, the female assassins is like, well, I mean, that's kind of a thing. All right. You're asking us to slaughter the cops. What's the matter? People die every day. Famine, plague, sickness, car crashes, airplane crashes. That's a little different, isn't it? No, it's the exact same thing. When you're dead, you're dead and nobody matters about it once you're dead. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's all have a drink. And they all suddenly start drinking. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so this sounds like the craziest plan coming from the most bloodthirsty place it could possibly come from. But oddly enough, as bloodthirsty and crazy as it is, you actually do hold it in your mind. You know what the plan is. And then it comes the moment of the robbery. So now everything has to happen in five minutes. The entire thing happens in five minutes. They've got to blow the safe, slaughter all the policemen, get in and get out in three and a half minutes, all done in five minutes. By the time the movie gets to that scene... It is so fucking incredibly exciting. I can't tell you. Yeah. And because of the economy at which he's working, he makes the choice to stay outside with the gunmen. Yes. So that you don't have to do all the monkey business inside the vault and see all the shit going on inside of there. Mm -hmm. You're out there with those guys. They pull up. They're in some neighborhood they can control. Some East End, like, ramshackle industrial neighborhood. They look like they're in the industrial neighborhood that Mr. Scarface takes place in. (laughs) So they're they're in this easily controllable location. They pull up. The guys run in. They don't have a vault to to shoot. They don't have, you know, they don't have anything. They don't have, yeah, exactly. to, To work with. And so instead what he does is you're just out there and you have a a moment of suspense and it turns out to be great suspense. You're sitting out there. Okay. We're waiting. We're waiting. Then you hear the bomb go off inside. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. They blow in the vault. And then after that, like the police are approaching and then they unleash like, because some machine guns, because you haven't been, you know, uh, moving with the pace of the of the the yeah. thieves and everything, and yeah. loading the gems into the thing, and and hustling. Yeah. Uh-huh. You're out there waiting, and you're nervous. You're fucking nervous. And so then, when the police arrive, suddenly then it turns into a bloodbath. Yeah. And that bloodbath is so freaking violent and exciting how they do it and shot kind of verite style. Yeah. Because because they're no, it's, it's all because shot, of the economy. It's of the all shoot. shot handheld. They're just doing it and they're capturing it. Yeah, and it's just fantastic. And then that, they hop in the car and they got three and a half minutes to you know, and and they do. A crazy they, drive through, which you know, they, again, is they do one of the, they do one of the best, and, and it looks like Russ Meyer edited yeah. that sequence. By and the I way, would, and I, I would add the car chase in a uh, uh, second best secret agent in the whole wide world. Two of the best low budget chases I've ever seen, where yeah. you can tell that they had no permits, they had no fucking permission, they just fucking did it, they just fucking did it. Yeah, and that's the mantra of of Lindsay Shantoff's filmmaking: just fucking do it. Well, he also, you know, it's funny when this movie began, I, uh, I'm watching it and I'm thinking, okay, uh, I've never seen this film, mm-hmm. but if you told me that I had stolen things from this movie, I would believe you Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> because yeah, yeah. like from the opening credits with the kind of guitar, like, don't, if you were, don't. <laughs> if you were, if you were Roger Avery, if you're a Roger Avery fan and you watched the fast kill, you go, oh well, shit. Well, yeah, blah, blah, he blah. stole from the opening <laughs> credits, like right away. It's like, uh, you're driving in a car through Paris out. I think I do it a little better, but I'll tell you what Lindsay Shontoff does do better than me. And part of it is because he's uh, a, a super economical guy is, okay, they're going to Paris and they're shooting a little bit in Paris. Mm-hmm. Okay. When I went to Paris, when I did my film in Paris, I made a point of not 
wanting to shoot like the Eiffel Tower. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to shoot that necessarily. Mm -hmm. Lindsay Schoenthoff, on the other hand, makes full use of what he's got. Mm -hmm. He makes sure to, in that opening sequence, mm -hmm. okay, you've got Concord, you've got the, uh, the Luxor mm -hmm. obelisk, mm -hmm. you've got the, the statue of, you know, you're in Paris. Yeah. There's a lot of me in this guy, or th there's a lot of this guy in me one way or the other, mm -hmm. but I wish there was more of that because mm -hmm. I mean, he made his movie look so much bigger than you know than it was then it was no it, i mean it, it it's fantastic as far as that's concerned the other thing that I, I i struck me about this movie and it actually took me i i watched this movie three times mm -hmm. um the first time i was like i cannot believe how much time they're spending on these kind of moments these that felt like posturing moments mm -hmm. where He's interviewing people, this kind of procedural part of the minutia of setting up mm -hmm. a, um, a, a heist. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so he meets with somebody and tells him what he's got. I'm going to need you to do this. Well, I can't do it on that day. Mm -hmm. Well, when can you do it? Well, I can't do it on that day, but maybe I could do it on that Wednesday. I can't you do know, it on the 23rd, but I can do it on the 20th. I can't do it on the 20th, but I can do it on the 20th. There's all this like business going on of how difficult it is. It's like herding cats. Like he's planning, he's the brains behind this one. He's normally like a thug. Mm -hmm. Like the movie opens with him. Yeah, beating some guy up. Yeah, like not just beating him up. First he beats him up and he looks like like one of the Cray brothers or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. He's like a thug in a suit. Mm -hmm. You know, like he's he's wearing a suit because he makes him look like a normal guy. He's a mm -hmm. thug. After beating the shit out of that guy, he looks over at that candlestick. And you know right away, oh, he's going to like- Oh, he's going to kill him with the candlestick. He's killing him with the candlestick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is a thug. And he's normally a thug. This, this is him. He's going to be the brains. Yeah. But then it's also weird because it's like, okay, we don't know what the heist is for a while until it gets to the mid-movie when he explains the heist. Also- like I said, he's got this relationship with like his girlfriend or his wife or his partner. And that then, you know, it's similar to uh, Steve McQueen and Ali McGraw until you find out that she's plotting against him. Yeah. She's not with him. She's sleeping with one of the other guys. And she's, there's a whole plan. She has a whole plan that uh, she intends to use. And we find this out fairly early in the movie, which now, now we know that Tom Adams is a cuckold. We actually think differently about him than we had before that happens. Then after the robbery, Tom Adams just casually announces what his plan is for the rest of the thing and like oh really that's your plan <laughs> so they keep introducing these things to the narrative that completely changes your perspective of characters or even the story that they're telling but it's kind of interesting because they actually do a, some pretty good justifications for for why people go along with that crazy plan is mm -hmm. before he tells them what the plan is he's like okay we're all here we're in london you know we're we're gonna get ready Okay, so the next couple of days we've got to like kind of integrate and get ready and do everything. Here's your spending money. There's and he's giving them big wads of cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So by that point, they're hooked. Mm -hmm. Like that one guy, he goes out and he immediately spends it on hookers and blow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he immediately the demolition guy, yeah. The demolition guy immediately goes out and, you know, gets laid at the <laughs> at the strip club and and probably blows all of his money. And so like it's almost like he knows that I'm going to prime the well. I'm going to give them mm -hmm. this money. That's going to be the taste. They're not going to be able to turn it down. And as outlandish as the plan is when he finally reveals it to them. Mm -hmm. And as much as everyone is like not liking and the sound And they're all bitching it, and moaning it. But then they're like, well, I guess we got to do it. What the fuck else are we going to do? Yeah, what yeah. else are we going to do? Yeah, we're yeah. I, At this point, there's no turning Hey, 20 million, 20 million diamonds. What are we going to do? Yeah, and he gives them dollars. an opportunity to yeah, turn yeah. around. And I love it when that 
kind of Martin Scorsese looking yeah, 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 gunrunner yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. Who's uh, yeah, there's Gamal, a, yeah, I think is his name. Yeah, there's a Martin Scorsese guy and there's the Eric Stoltz guy who's on the cover of the box. Yeah, I, again, yeah. another Roger, like that Eric Stoltz guy, the killer who shows up yeah. and they do that whole scene. And a Roger movie literally played by Eric Stoltz. Yeah, it, it literally <laughs> doing looked a cam- like- Doing a cameo. Yeah. I, if I had remade this movie, I would have cast Eric Stoltz in that guy's role. Of course you would have. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was perfect in it. Now, there's a lot of things in the story, that in the script or whatever, that don't make sense or don't hold up. But almost everything that doesn't work in the movie at the end of the day ends up working for just the unique cheapo ingenuity of this movie. It's a tough little powder keg. You can't make too much of it, but for what it is, it's really a lot of fun. I think of the I think of the cheap films that we've done on the show so far. I I think I like the Fast Kill the most as a movie, even more than a a, a one arm executioner. Uh, at the end of the day, I kind of think Fast Kill is the better movie. Um, and I gotta say, after I saw it, it's the one that stayed in my head the most, even more than Baxter. You know, like the Jet Benny thing, you're constantly proud of the ingenuity involved into them finishing this motion picture. Yeah. And what he lacks in budget, he makes up for in style with what he can get away with style wise. You know, like that scene where the Eric Stoltz guy and the other killer, Mm -hmm. when they kill the, I don't know who they're killing, the financier. Yeah, they're killing the financier so the guy can be free to do the fast kill. Yeah. And when that whole scene takes place. It's it's played out in a kind of weird, almost one would almost say an awkward staging of it, like an almost a small staging of it. But then he makes up for it by having that Gamal guy kind of yeah. standing up there watching it all, mm-hmm. and the, his placement of camera just it it makes it everything is very kind of stylized and no, posed. And that and brick cul de sac thing can look more like shitty London. Yeah, yeah, it is shitty London. <laughs> Okay, and now we're back with Gala. What did you think of The Fast Kill? You know what? I was kind of lukewarm on it. I honestly, I should have liked it better than I did because I love heist movies. I love heist gone wrong or heist gone right, then gone wrong, then gone right. But I don't know. I was a little lukewarm on it. But as you guys, you guys captured like the exact parts of this movie, which are so good, which is one, the actual heist sequence, which literally is like over in like a flash. It's shocking how fast it, that it's almost like real time it, that and that and that amazing car cha- car escape. The, the car escape is it's like you feel like you're in the car with him, and it's because it literally happens in that exact time that it's supposed to happen. There's some scenes in movies where you're like, we have 20 minutes to get in and out. And then you're like watching your clock. It's like, do you really have 20 minutes? Like, what's going on here? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. okay, your clock only says like 19 minutes, but it's been five minutes in the movie, and like it doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. No, this feels like you're actually in the heist with them. And I think, Roger, that you're right. That the reason why it does feel like that is because you're outside with the gunmen. Yeah, yeah. And right, you're not yeah. cutting back and forth repeatedly. Well, it's a it's that thing of create a moment of calm before an explosion of violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that um so instead of like, you know, kind of amping everybody's heartbeat up, instead what you do is you make people wonder, how's it going inside of there? Mm-hmm. What's happening inside of and, there? And you, and you did a great job of describing that you're coming in the yeah. distance as because it's a shitty day. There's like it's looks like cold as shit. There's like <laughs> Ugly mist in the air, and just like this guy and this girl with their submachine guns waiting for the cops to show up. Yeah, yeah, and I I love that the the female hitman is like a lesbian that's been hitting on that girl because mm-hmm. it like gives it like this kind of like 
it's kind of sexy, but it's kind of uncomfortable. And it's just, it's, it was like a really nice touch. And I love- Her and the, dri- her and the driver are my two favorite of, yeah. the, of the team. Yeah. And I love what Roger brought up about the money, how he hands out, I think it's like $20,000 each. And yeah, the yeah. girl asks him, why did you do that? Like, that's a lot of money. You could have given them less. And he's like, well, I'm anticipating what they're going to do with it. Like, he's going to go spend it on hookers and blow. He's going to immediately go send it to his wife because he needs to do that. And so he's seeing their reasons on, like, if they're actually going to be reliable for the heist. They're spending the money and they want more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they need more. Yeah, yeah they're, on the, they're on the tit now. Yeah. yeah, because they all immediately spend it all, but, like, in different ways. So he's able to anticipate, okay, these people actually will mm-hmm. go in. Okay, so this director. I checked out some other movies by this director. He does a lot of, like, really different genre stuff. Like, he doesn't just stick to like one thing or even mm-hmm. two things. Mm-hmm. So what's popular this week? Exactly. I mean, I watched Permissive, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is his rated X British band <laughs> movie, which is a great movie to pop on during dinner. I just. <laughs> no, I've heard. I've, uh, 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 I it's think on, it's on YouTube. I was bringing up Lindsay Shantoff to Edgar Wright. And he was saying that uh, he wanted to see more Lindsay Shantoff stuff, but, uh, uh, but he did watch Permissive for uh, last night in Soho. Yeah. And that is on YouTube. Surprisingly, it's rated X and available on YouTube. Um, I also did watch uh, The Second Best Secret Agent in the Whole Wide World, which is also known as License to Kill mm-hmm. and is also known as Secret Service. And then he also did another one uh, 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 that I see we're going to be playing at the New Beverly coming up uh, uh, called The Bullet Machine. Yes. Um, and I know also The Million Eyes of Sumeru is also playing at the New Beverly because I got my tickets. Yes, exactly. So, I've, I've had the trailer for The Million Eyes of Sumeru for millions of years. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to be watching a lot of Sean Teff this this month. Um, but my favorite movie of his that I watched is Devil Doll. Oh, the Devil Doll. Well, that's that's the closest thing to uh, like a horror classic. That, that he movie has. is so freaking good. Yeah, I love it. The Devil Doll is like is the cheapest version of the uh, uh, Dead of Night. Yeah, Dead, Dead of Night. Night the yeah. Michael Redgrave story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's the William Goldman version of it with with magic. Okay, then there's the Michael Redgrave version and Dead of Night, and then there's Lindsay Shantos' cheap version, <laughs> The Devil Doll. But the cheap version is pretty fucking good, too. The Devil Doll was awesome. It's like this noir ventriloquist movie, and it has these crazy, like, track zooms that happen all the time. And I was like, wow, I love this movie so much. One of the things I just have to say really quick is that, the because I noticed that The Devil Doll and then uh, Curse of the Voodoo. Mm-hmm. They were released two, together, yeah. Released together under Gala World Film. Oh, wow. So I just had to say that. And then um, only two other movies were released under that. Which were directed by Sidney J. Fury, which who did oh. Superman Four. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Boys, which was a Columbia picture, and then a movie called During One Night. I think The Boys is like the Leather Boys. That's Sidney J. Fury. Yeah, it's known as the Leather Boys. The Leather Boys. It's about uh, yeah, yeah, the guy. yeah, yeah. They're on like motorcycles. Or something. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't watch those, but I was interested because that's a Gala World film. Gala World film. I was like, what is up with Gala World film? I should get down with that. So <laughs> you should buy the logo. I know. I should just. It's mine now. Okay, so. This is not available for streaming. There is no DVD of this. You can pick it up on VHS. Um, Quentin, I picked up that Video Gems box, Mm -hmm. the Video Gems big box. The Eric Stoltz cover box? Yes, Mm for $32.85 on eBay. This little, there was another Video Gems big box on eBay for, which was in worse shape. Those Video Gems boxes, like, are the bane of my existence when I have to find them because mm-hmm. they're always cracked and like yeah, yeah. degrading. I don't know what it's like in your collection. Well, they, they haven't traveled everywhere, so they're fine. Yeah, so they're fine. <laughs> Just the travel then, I guess. But yeah, that one's actually in pretty good this shape. This is in pretty good shape. My, actually, here the the breakup is like aesthetic. It looks cool. <laughs> yeah, like my tape, I think for like um Andy Warhol's 
Frankenstein is like the worst. It's <laughs> I, I feel bad even looking at that box. <laughs> there is another video gems big box on eBay like currently for like, over a hundred dollars, and I was like, I'm not gonna buy that. Like oh, it's too much. I just got one for thirty two dollars. So I picked it that this but Congress. You thought about it. I thought you? about yeah. it, yeah. but I didn't because it's a one of those boxes. That well, just, it's it's out there for the uh, for the uh, first <laughs> listener to grab it <laughs> if it's still there. Um, so I picked up this Congress video group box, which there are several of these out there for nineteen dollars and ninety nine cents. I guess Eric Stoltz is on the cover of this one also. <laughs> Stoltz, <laughs> <laughs> the Eric Stoltz guy. Okay, so now we're back and it's time for awards. So remember, our films are Buster and Billy, Backstab, and The Fast Kill. Okay, so let's start. Uh, let's start with an easy one. Uh, let's start with lead actor. I will go to you, Roger. Oh, for me, that's easy. That's easy. It's Jan Michael Vincent. I've always liked him, even when mm-hmm. he's not great in mm-hmm. the movies, even when he's just dialing it in in whatever movie he's walked into. <laughs> but, That's much later. <laughs> and it's way later. This is, this is the young vibrant. Yeah. This is the guy that like is a star in the moment. Yeah. This is him at his, he's peaking mm-hmm. in this moment and he's, and he's acting. Okay. Let me ask a question. I don't have the answer to this. Okay. Um, does the guy who does Baxter yeah. is he is, Baxter Baxter okay, okay. is, is he eligible for okay. best actor? Okay. Yes, he I is an actor. He I kind of th- I kind of think he is eligible. Okay, wait a second. Okay. Also, okay, is the dog eligible also? Well, like, I, separately? well, well, I, well I, I have no problem combining the voice and the dog together into one. Maxime thing. Larue is who we're talking about, and then the dog's and the dog's name is Coco. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, mercifully, they didn't have the other dog Yeah, talking. I'm glad, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, does Jan Michael Vincent still win? Mm. Baxter. <laughs> Baxter. I mean, in that case, look, in that case, uh, uh, all three male leads, I'm down with. All right, I'm down with Baxter, I'm down with uh, 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 Jan Michael Vincent, I'm down Tom with Tom Adams. Adams. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to go with Jan Michael Vincent. Good I'm, for you, I'm good for stay, you. To me, this is one of his great performances. This is a, and he's carrying the film. He's really carrying it along. He does. I just wish there was more Jan Michael Vincent, if you know what I mean. (laughs) And after you see the movie, you'll know what I mean. Okay. I really want to say Baxter because I think that first off, the dog is phenomenal in the film. Mm -hmm. Like there's that one scene where the baby actually sticks its finger in the eye of the dog. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And the dog doesn't do it. Like the dog is really well trained. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I'm still going to go with Baxter, but I, I have to say Jan Michael Vincent in the scene that we did not speak about is completely fantastic and explosive and heart-wrenching. But yeah, my vote's for Baxter. Yeah, let's see where Quentin falls. Avery's have fallen on both sides of the uh, There's a third the side he can take. There is three. You know, and I think I'm going to take it just because I actually think all three leads are so terrific. I'm going to vote for Tom Adams just so we can represent the fact that we had a, it was Blue Ribbon Day here at, at uh, the Best Lead Actor Awards. Mm-hmm. At, yeah, uh, it uh, was. So, uh, so I'm going for Tom Adams for Fast Kill. Okay, so uh, for uh, Lead Actress. Joan Goodfellow as Billy, perhaps. I think I'll probably go for Joan Goodfellow as Billy. Well, because well. who else do we really have? Like, we, we have Lise Delamar, who is the old lady. I think the old I, I think the old lady would count as a, yeah. would count as a lead, and I think Susie Hampton in the Fast Kill, his his partner, would count as a lead. 
But I, I think I'm definitely going to go with Joan Goodfellow because she gives a really nuanced performance. How about you? Uh, how about you, Ryan? Lee Stellamare, who I'm going to go for in Baxter. The, uh, the, old, other, the, old the older lady. lady? The old lady, yeah. The older lady. Okay, I, I went with uh, 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 Joan Goodfellow. Okay, uh, for Best Supporting Actor, uh, mm. I could go with The Little Boy, all right, in, in Baxter. All right. Uh, but I'm going to go with Robert England. In, in in Buster and Billy, I actually think um, it was actually nice to see Robert England in a real movie movie. Yeah. Right, you know, at that time, at at and what I think is probably his first big role, you know, in in a real movie. You know, he he'd later be in other exploitation movies, and he's some of the best thing in those exploitation movies. But I liked him being in such a legit film, and he's a really terrific character in that movie. Very much like Randy Quaid at that period of time. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned Randy Quaid uh, before, and I think you also mentioned Harry Dean Stanton as a kind yeah, of like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know that. Like at that moment, you almost think, wow, he's like going to become, instead he becomes Freddy Krueger, which yeah, is, exactly. he becomes but, a movie star But, I could, but I, could, I could see him after this. I could see him being part of Billy's gang and have Garrett and Billy the Kid. Sure, and yeah, yeah. sure. Is he part yeah. of the gang and the Missouri Breaks? No, I'm, I'm with you on him. Yeah. I think he's my favorite as well. I like Whitey, but I think I'm going to go for the little kid in Baxter. Oh, okay. Well, the little kid deserves it too. I don't find kids in movies scary and creepy and i never quite buy it when they try to possession that not this kid this kid is creepy he has, this a, kid he has is, a cold psychopath yeah this kid him. is yeah no this kid feels like a no he's a serial killer it's you just happen to be meeting a serial killer and, he, and he's nine best supporting actress Okay, so our choices, I guess we have uh, Pamela Sue Martin. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going. With Pamela, I'm going with Pamela Sue Martin. Uh, we have uh, the uh, the cool lesbian, the cool lesbian Ooh. with the uh, submachine gun in the fast kill, and you also have the little girl in Baxter. You have the little girl in Baxter, she and you was, have and she was great actually, and you have the vivacious, uh, 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 sexy woman in the uh, uh, in the house. Uh, oh yeah, the 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 one that gets pregnant, the one that pets Baxter on the lawn, and he and he has sexual fantasies yeah. about it for oh, the, the, next the few good days. years. Oh, she's smells different the happy now. days <laughs> oh, she was barefoot on the lawn and she petted my head i've thought about it for four days straight yeah i smell something smells different about her i smell another person the inside sickness, of her the yeah. sickness yeah i could go with pamela sue martin i could go with a uh, uh, the blonde lesbian chick with a submachine gun in the fast kill but i'm actually going to go with the vivacious uh uh pretty wife who becomes the mother in uh, Baxter. I thought she was really charming in that film. And I, I understood where Baxter was coming from. <laughs> I think performance-wise, for me, it's one of those two girls in Baxter, either the little girl or the vivacious woman. You mean the Ava Braun girl? Yeah, the Ava Braun girl. Well, that, that's the little girl, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. little girl. That girl, Ava Braun girl in, yeah, I think in I'll Baxter give, is really good. I think I'll give it to her because... Really, her performance really is good, her. and then the two little kids play really. They're not annoying. No, they, yeah, no, they're no. very realistic kids together. Like that, seemingly only French films are able to do to capture these, you know, children in their naturalistic. When they have their scene qualities. where they're like just about to like, I think, have sex, mm. and she kisses him, and she's like, "Tell me what to do. I'll do anything you want." And he just says, "Shut up." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we come to best direction. Okay, I'm going to go with Jérôme Boivin, mostly because of that moment at the at mm-hmm. the in the graveyard where he's looking at the grave of the old lady. Th- to me, that was just such a, a deftly. But having said that, Lindsay Schoenteff, 
he's his his work here is we admirable have, and actually the most Roger Avery of mm. the two <laughs> of those two films. We have three very well directed films here. Um, it's a t- it's a tough call to make because th- both of them are using different kinds of skills. I would have thought before we watched Dogs the- and Children though. Dogs and yeah. Children. I would have thought before we watched the film that Jerome Bovin would be the winner from my memory of the film. Look, there's no two, three, four ways about it. Backstar is a better movie than Fast Kill. Buster and Billy, I think, is a better movie than Fast Kill. I just like Fast Kill more. (laughs) (laughs) Fast Kill is the one that stayed with me of the three movies, all right? It's like, it's the one I hadn't seen. And uh, the other two that I saw, again, I liked. They held up. They were just a little less than my memory of them. But I mean, ever so little, like 10% less. But Fasco was so much better than I could have imagined it could be. It wins almost everything for me (laughs) when it comes to the technical thing, because it's it's them pulling it off. See, that's the thing. With low-budget movies like this, there is the aspect of them accomplishing their task, not just telling you the story, not just being entertaining, accomplishing the task. And the way it accomplishes its task, it's just so full of ingenuity. So yeah, I would pick Lindsay Chantal, best director for Pascal. I'm going to go for Baxter because dogs and children and just, ugh, I don't even like Baxter is the thing. It's like, I love Baxter. I don't even like Baxter. It was just, oh my God. Ugh. Baxter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, best screenplay, I think I have to give to Baxter. I mean, ODR has to has to have it. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's almost annoying that ODR has to have best screenplay, but uh, nevertheless, it's- But Buster and Billy and Fast Killer right right next to it, man. I mean, you know, B- 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 Baxter has the benefit of being unique. The reason I don't give Fast Kill the edge in in this uh, in this department is um, not its fault, because um, what it's doing in in the very beginning isn't it's not trying to make the plan clear. Yeah, and so you have all these scenes that took me a while to to connect with because I was like, okay, what's going on here? What's happening here? <laughs> but I'm not meant to understand. Just like, yeah, it, like any single element of that crime is not meant to understand what's going on. And then until all, they tell you. Until it all comes together. And then you're like, oh, that's how it's coming together. And I, that's I why and that's why that's why there's a payoff. I no, I get it. Yeah. I love all that. But having said that, like Baxter, I know what Baxter is from almost frame one. Yeah, yeah. Best screenplay gala. I mean, it has to go to Baxter. Like, come on. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost like upset that I'm giving stuff to Baxter right now. Like, we, we need to wrap it up because I'm getting upset. <laughs> okay. Best video box. Did I even say it? <laughs> fast yeah, it's fast. It's got Eric Stoltz on the cover. That's it. The Eric, <laughs> the Eric Stoltz meets Steve Railsback guy. Yeah, meets Steve Railsback. Yeah, there, there is 30% Steve Railsback like, inside of that like, Eric Stoltz. Like, uh, <laughs> Stephen. Stoltzback, <laughs> what did you call him? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what did I call him? Uh, yeah, rail Stoltz or uh, rail Stoltz, rail Stoltz or something like that. Something like that. Oh, I also want to say the editing in Fast Kill. I don't know who edited this movie, mm-hmm. but oh, yeah. really but it looked like Russ Meyer was editing. It. Yeah, I know. And, and I think Russ Meyer is a great editor. So it, even though he has a kind of uh, slightly choppy style yeah. uh, an, a, a economy of mm-hmm. assemblage 
Well, wait, right. you're giving it a, a tremendous compliment saying it looks like Russ Meyer, but I know what you mean. Though. Well, especially I'm, he keeps I, it moving. I'm especially talking. He doesn't about, have the he doesn't have all the setups that Russ hey, Meyer has, hey, but he keeps it moving. That car chase that car chase through the streets is a great example of we've got half a day to shoot a car chase. Not even half. I bet they had to shoot that whole thing with the machine gun stuff also on that day. I think so too. They probably had to shoot all of that on that day, and then they had to kind of make that car chase work and be exciting and be like you know. I, I think I said to you I'm, as we were watching I'm it. I'm liking Fasco like, even more after listening to you talk right now. Yeah. Okay, forget about the end of the episode. Right now, you're talking me more into Fasco. I mean, <laughs> during that scene, I, I, I turned to you, I think, and I said, this is like as good as the stunt chase sequence in Born Supremacy, that whole <laughs> prog sequence that they do that is unbelievable. You're overstating your case, but you can't overstate it when the fact that they probably had Seven weeks to do that boring supremacy thing. And then they had like, you know, three days at the most to do fast An afternoon. I I thought the editing was just terrific in this film. And then lastly, um, best music. Mm -hmm. To me, it has to go to Hillman and Rofe or uh, Rofe or however you pronounce his name. Mm -hmm. Um, It has to go to these two French composers for For Baxter. Baxter, the the kind of harpsichord like you know, I would kind of go with Fast Kill for music because <laughs> oh, because you love that. Well, that, I, that love, theme. I love the theme. The, the theme was great, and I thought they were just going to keep playing the theme throughout. But then they actually had other pieces, and I okay. thought they worked pretty good. And furthermore, um, and furthermore, the opening credit sequence, the yeah. Killing Zoe, yeah, 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 yeah. the Killing Zoe scene, yeah, actually has what almost sounds like it sounds like Tom and Andy took the music from Fast Kill <laughs> and then added some electronica on top of it, but kept that little guitar riff that down down. That kind well, of well, it's it's you know like <laughs> it is great. In order for it's it to music. be a legit '70s crime film, it has to be legit. It has to be filmed in the '70s in a cool city, and it needs some music. All right, and then the Fast Kill definitely has that. I say Buster and Billy because I really like the song. Okay, I like okay. that Buster and Billy song. And also, just just to say for the box, really quick, if we were talking about box art, I would say the Video Gems Fast Kill. If we're talking about box itself, I'm going to go with the Buster and Billy box because it's that beautiful mm-hmm. brown, red, and it's just gorgeous. And it's got the like a, a photo album. It's like a photo album. And I, and yeah, uh, literally box... the classic nostalgia look yeah. for a poster. And I love how this box opens. Like it's not a gatefold and it's not a chiclet. It's box. a pain in the ass, is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, so with everything that I just said, we now come down to best picture. That's tough. So tough, Roger. What do you think was the best movie? Okay, was, like well, I said, this is all by degrees. Yes. And um and, and and this is especially difficult for me. Okay, I I really like Buster and Billy, but it's to me the battle right now is between the battle within me is <laughs> Fast Kill and Baxter. Mm-hmm. Both are movies that as you well know speak to Roger Avery directly. Mm-hmm. And um uh and I want to say Baxter with all my soul and heart, I want to say Baxter, but I got to go with fast skill because when I look at it, I'm like, you know what, Roger, you are fast kill. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is who you are. Baxter. It's going to haunt me. I'm gonna, 
I don't like this movie. I don't ever want to see it again. I hated the imagery in it. Oh. No, you, you, no, what it did, it was it, it touched things in you and it made you feel things that are uncomfortable that you don't there, want to some feel. Things, there's some things in it that I don't like and I don't want to ever recommend anyone this movie. Because well, no, no, I, 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 but, I, don't, no I don't think any animals were hurt during the No, no, the no, no, the fights. No, I could even, tell. Even the dog fights. No, I could tell. I could tell. I, I could tell. No, tell, I could tell that, you. that was so no, difficult no, to watch. Listen, I, I can tell you, I can tell you actually with absolute certainty there are uh, two things that you can, you can do many things in France. I've shot in France. You've shot in France. You can do many, many, many things. Animal, yeah. They are very liberal. You can do anything you want in cinema. You cannot like, they're very strict about children and they are very strict about animals. I could tell. I so could, there's they, no way. They, they that, did a really good job with it, but I could tell that it, that was phony. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was, it was, it it was, was done, effective. It was done with. A, it was done with sound effects, and the dogs just knew what they were doing, but they were just playing. All it right. was really hard to watch, and for that reason, Baxter okay. wins. You know, sometimes um, 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 movies don't have to make you feel good. Yeah, for, not at all. for them to you know elicit a kind of positive uh, influence on you. That's or a, a lesson that I'm learning <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, and, and something that can fester inside of you and make you think. You know, Baxter is not escapism. For sure. Okay. Well, it is definitely a movie that you think about for years after you've seen it, probably. Well, where I'm going, and that's, that was definitely the case with me. All right. Um, I'm coming exactly from where Roger coming from. Obviously, Baxter is the better movie than The Fast Kill. But I just liked Fast Kill. All right. Yeah. It was like, I, I, I liked what they did. I liked how they pulled it off. It was so fucking exciting. It's the one that I hadn't seen before. And I just got so much more than I could have imagined. And um, Baxter is definitely the more unique movie of the two, but I just can't, I, I, I just kind of wish I had made the fast kill. <laughs> and I think that brings us to a, another conclusion of uh, another exciting Video Archives podcast episode. I want to thank everybody involved. Thank you, Gala. Thanks, Quentin. Thanks, Roger. Thank Thanks, you, guys. Roger. Thank you, Josh. Okay, are we going to talk about our new... Uh... Yeah. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> Hey, we have a new engineer in the room with us, Alex. <laughs> I'm just pressing record. <laughs> and, <laughs> and stop. And I remember the laughter, sure the laughter had when you were here. The Video Archives podcast is hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richmond and Gala Avery with executive producers Colin Anderson and Natalie Muallam. Our engineers are Alex Gonzalez and Marcus Hom. Find out more about the show and get Video Archives merch at videoarchivespodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Video Archives and on Instagram at Video Archives Pod. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. 
If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 